When I approach a player about appearing on the show as a guest, I basically tell them the same things. We're going to talk about your career. We're going to timeline it from start to finish. We're going to talk about your teammates. We're going to talk about some scraps, basically anything you want to talk about, but I want to keep it light and I want to keep it fun. I did that today with today's guest, but because of some of his own experiences, it gets a little serious at some points, and it's actually good to bring this man's perspective on certain events going on in the world and in the world of hockey to you today. I am very grateful today that I get to bring you part one of my interview with Graham Townsend. Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. But just a minute, Al Arbor has won four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box. I'm your host, as always, Joe Lazito. Episode 40, The Big 4-0. And today, I bring you part one of my chat with Graham Townsend. This episode, um, my whole chat with Graham actually uh, was, was pretty amazing. And I know I say that about all my interviews, and I, I truly mean that. The difference with this interview with Graham is uh, Graham is the first uh, Jamaican-born player to play in the NHL. And in case you're not familiar with Graham, Graham is a black player. So um, Graham has faced a lot of stuff over the years, and uh, we touch on some of that. We touch on the attack on hockey and the attack on hockey culture with quotes there. Um, We talk about a lot of stuff. Uh, I'm not going to really give too much of it away in the intro here. Um, but obviously like all my interviews, we talk a lot of on ice stuff. We, we basically talk about his career from college, uh, through retirement, through his, uh, he went on to coach. So as always, we touch on everything, but, uh, because I get to interview someone like Graham, who's had a lot of different experiences than, uh, most of the guests that I've had on, there are points where it does get serious and it's actually really good to have someone on like Graham who's been through it personally. I think the issue that a lot of people have, and especially with social media, because social media is so easily accessible to everybody, um, and everybody has an opinion, but most people who have these opinions have never gone through anything and uh, or gone through anything that they're fighting for. And it sort of rings a little hollow because... It always seems like, uh, especially with real life stuff, the people who are screaming the loudest 
they're sort of trying to white knight certain issues and um they've never gone through it themselves and uh, that's with a lot of things uh but one of the advantages of speaking to graham is graham's been through a lot of shit and uh he's come out a better person and the thing that uh, i tell graham in the interview is with all the stuff he's gone through it's a lot of it is really shitty but the thing that i'm most impressed with is the way that he's handled it and the way that he's come out on the other side of all these issues he's uh he is really a first class individual he's a great human being and he really is an inspiration i know a lot of times people use the word inspiration or inspiring a lot it's kind of overused and and everything but i, I think when you're done listening to the interview to both parts i i think you'll 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 understand why I say Graham is is very inspiring. So uh, this was uh, unbelievable to chat with Graham. I honestly had no idea how long the interview would be, and we ended up talking for almost four and a half hours, which is why this is a two parter. Um, I think it's definitely worth listening to every minute. I hope you enjoy it. It was my pleasure to chat with him, and as always, feedback is always welcome. So um, as I said, episode forty. If this is your first time listening to the show, I really appreciate you tuning in. Um, there's a million and one podcasts out there and, um, you chose to spend some time with me and, uh, and I really appreciate that. And of course, if you're returning, you know what the deal is. Thanks for coming back. I must've made an impression with you somewhere along the way, uh, because you're here again. So, um, I really appreciate, I appreciate everyone who's listening right now. You guys are absolutely the best. So, as usual, let's go over a few things. Uh, first and foremost, if you are on social media, I am on Twitter at Joe underscore Lozito and at Kali Sinbin Pod. Uh, the Joe Lozito Twitter handle is my personal handle. The Kali Sinbin Pod is the uh, handle for the show. I just surpassed 600 followers on the show Twitter. I am really pumped about that. Um, you know, listen, I don't, I don't pull in the numbers of uh, celebrities, and I, I say that in quotes too, but uh, I know that if, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you're either following me because you're uh, a fan of the show. I hate to say fan of the show. I mean, you enjoy the show um, or you enjoy the content that I put out on social media. So uh, I know there's 600 people that, uh, that are enjoying what I'm doing. Maybe there's more that just aren't on social media, but uh, to everybody who's, who's followed the show account on Twitter, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. And of course, like I always say, if you follow me on either account, I will follow you back because it's just the right thing to do. Uh, I, <laughs> the pet peeve of mine is when I see, hey, follow me on Twitter. Follow, give me a follow on Twitter. And then you click on their profile and they have 177,000 followers and 62 people they're following. Well, why? I mean, why are you so important that you want people to follow you, but you won't reciprocate? But anyway, if you follow me, I will follow you back. Um, if you're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Coliseum Chronicles podcast. Um, I have my own Facebook. I don't really post on it too much. Uh, and the content I put on the, on the, uh, Facebook page for the show is similar to the Twitter content. It's all Islander Enforcer related stuff. So nothing too serious. Uh, if you're on Facebook, you know, there's a lot of garbage on there and uh, probably a lot of your friends are posting that garbage, but um, you know, I, I try to keep it light. I try to keep it fun on these uh, social media accounts. So uh, give that uh, page a like, I guess it's a like, not a follow. 
um, on Facebook, but give it a like. And Instagram, Coliseum underscore Chronicles underscore podcast. Again, all show-related stuff, very little personal stuff on there. It used to be my personal Instagram, but I didn't really post too much, so I'm going to use it as a tool now to help promote the show. So you got Twitter, you got Facebook, you got Instagram. Uh, follow, like, whatever it is on whichever platform, I will reciprocate in kind. Also, please, whatever platform you're listening to the show on right now, please subscribe, uh, like the show, rate the show, review the show, whatever you can do uh, on that platform. I listen to my shows on Apple Podcasts, so I know on there you can uh, you can subscribe and you can rate the show and you can review, uh, review the show. I don't know how it is on the other platforms, but if you can take a second subscribe, like, rate, review. It all helps the show grow. Um, I feel like when I, from when I started almost a year ago till now, I feel like I've improved a lot. Um, you know, I'm more comfortable than I used to be. So I don't know how good I am, but, uh, but I feel like the show's getting better every episode and I, I, I'm enjoying building something here. So, um, the only way the show gets bigger is with the help of the listeners. So if you have a minute, Please like, subscribe, rate, review, whatever you can do. Uh, it will go a long way to helping make the show even bigger. So uh, thank you if you could take the time to do that. Uh, if you are a returning listener, you know that I have merchandise. The website for Coliseum Chronicles, the penalty box merchandise, is teespring.com slash stores slash Coliseum hyphen Chronicles hyphen merch. Or the easiest thing to do, whatever platform you're listening to, Scroll down to the bottom. There'll be a link that'll send you right to the merchandise page. Today is Sunday, um, the 22nd. I'm recording this on Sunday, the 22nd. You're either listening to this if you're a subscriber, maybe today, maybe tomorrow. As you know, uh, Thanksgiving is coming up. And uh, what happens after Thanksgiving? A lot of people start Christmas shopping. So uh, why not give that special person in your life some Coliseum Chronicles merchandise? I mean, it really is. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And as you know, if you are a returning listener, I do listener-exclusive discounts. Now, this week, use the code TURKEY. I actually came up with a code before I started recording. I didn't do it on the fly like I've done every other episode. But for this week, starting on Monday, you can use the code TURKEY, T-U-R-K-E-Y, and, uh, I mean, I'm topical. Thanksgiving's coming up. Turkey, I mean, come on. Um, 20% off everything in the store. Starting on Monday the 23rd, 20% off. So use the code TURKEY. Get some gifts for your loved ones. They'll love it. You'll love it. It's a win-win for everybody. Now, when you go on that website where my merchandise is, you're going to see my logo, the Coliseum Chronicles, the Penalty Box logo. The person who drew that logo, local Long Island artist Joe Marisich. Joe Marisich is available for hire. The man is an artistic genius. If you want to see more of his work, you can see his work on Twitter at GraphicsJoker or go to LoudEgg.com. You can contact Joe either way, ask him any questions. Maybe you guys uh, maybe have an art project you want Joe to work on for you. Dude's amazing, really. I always say his hand, I think he's right-handed, I'm not sure, but whichever hand he draws with, definitely touched by God. He is truly phenomenal. So, uh, at graphics joker on twitter or loudegg.com joe marisich reach out to him available for all your art projects amazing human being and, and an amazing artist so definitely do that 
Now, you're thinking, man, Thursday's coming up. I'm going to stuff my face. What do you do after Thanksgiving? What do a lot of people do besides Christmas shopping? Well, Thursday, after you're done eating and you're sitting in your chair, you're watching uh, football and you're feeling that belly and you're like, man, I got to get back to the gym. And if you're in New York, you're thinking, I got to get back to the gym before the emperor closes everything down full time. Well, if you're in New York, if you're on Long Island, you're in the boroughs and you want to go to the best fitness facility out there, you definitely want to check out Belmore Kickboxing and MMA. Belmore Kickboxing and MMA is Long Island's premier mixed martial arts gym, open seven days a week. They have classes for men, for women, for children, basically anyone that is breathing right now. There is a class for you at Belmore Kickboxing and MMA. Also, private lessons are available, private training sessions with some of the best in the business. Um, there are some professional fighters. Well, many professional fighters have trained there over the years. Some current professional fighters that train there, John Volante, Gregor Gillespie, Andre Harrison, Chris Algieri, Adam Kalnachki, they all train there. But it's not a professional fighter's gym. It's an everybody gym. So if you're listening to this and you're within earshot of the gym, definitely check them out. They're located at 2551 Merrick Road in Belmore. Phone number is 516-679-5997. BelmoreKickboxingMMA.com. When you reach out, ask for Keith Trimble. You've heard me uh, tout his greatness in the past. Keith is a good friend of mine, and he's the best trainer in the business. When you talk to Keith, mention the show. Mention that you heard about Belmore Kickboxing and MMA on the show, and you will get one free class. Could be a class for you. Could be a class for your significant other. Could be a class for your child. All you have to do, mention that you heard about the gym on the show, and you'll get that free class. And then who knows what happens from there. I'm sure you'll probably join. It's a great facility run by some great people, and I love it, and you will too. Belmore Kickboxing and MMA train where the champions train. If you're enjoying my show, chances are there are a few other shows out there that you will like. First is my friend Darren from Saskatchewan, Saskatoon to be exact, the Fourth Line Voice podcast, the OG of Enforcer podcasts. Uh, Darren does an amazing job every week. He has two episodes a week on the Hockey Podcast Network. His latest episode, he interviews a friend, a mutual friend of ours, John, who runs the official Hockey Fight League. What's the official Hockey Fight League? It's fantasy hockey for enforcers. Uh, probably the most interesting fantasy league out there. You're not worried about touchdowns or goals or plus minus or whatever. It's fantasy hockey league. You pick your team and uh, fantasy fight hockey league. You pick your team. Their matchups happen. There's a decision. You win, you lose, you move on, and there's more matchups. It's really an interesting concept. Uh, obviously, they talk about more stuff, but uh, but that's his latest guest. Now, as I'm recording on Sunday, I believe a new episode will be coming out today. I don't believe it's out yet. This was his Wednesday episode. But definitely check out his archives. He's got some pretty amazing guests on there. And uh, like I said, check out Darren on the Fourth Line Voice podcast. And if you have watched a fight on YouTube, chances are it's from Darren's YouTube channel, Fourth Line Voice on YouTube, over 2,200 fight videos. He's uploading fights all the time. This guy works for a living. I don't know where he finds the time to do the show and upload stuff and he has drunk hockey card collecting. And this guy, it's a life of Riley, I guess, up there. This guy has 30-hour uh, days. I don't know where he finds the time, but we're all better for it. He 
uh, provide some great listening content, some great viewing content. So definitely check out the Fourth Line Voice podcast. Check out his YouTube channel. You will not be disappointed. Now, next podcast I want to tell you about, which I hope will be coming back soon, and that is the Five for Fighting podcast with Alec Olin Salen. Alec's been a, a busy little boy lately the last few months, and he uh, hasn't really recorded anything. Uh, he's moving. He had a wedding to go to. He had COVID, which I believe he is COVID-free now. Uh, he's been uh, he's been very, very active the last few months. He hasn't recorded an episode, but I believe one is on the horizon. While you're waiting, check out his back catalog. Some really good episodes there with some pretty big names, and uh, you definitely want to check it out. Also, if you're on Facebook, Alec runs two pages on Facebook. You know there's a lot of crap on Facebook these pages are awesome. So when you're done sifting through all the political nonsense that your friends are posting and they really don't know what they're talking about, um, check out these pages for some relief. The Enforcer Appreciation page, um, I think there's 12 or 13,000 members on there, fight fans and uh, former enforcers. It's a good time. I mean, every I mean, it's Facebook, so you're always going to get the odd knucklehead that sneaks in there every now and then, but they're usually dealt with uh, pretty quickly. Also, if you're a, a jersey nerd or equipment nerd like myself, Alec also runs the QSPHL slash LNAH jersey and equipment page on Facebook. That page is not as popular yet. Uh, it's a relatively new page. I love it. I check it out every day. Um, I know some people don't really care for that league, but if you are if you like the jerseys and stuff, they, they always had some pretty colorful uniforms. I um, I have one. I posted it on there. And um, I'd love to get a Joel Terrio jersey, but I think those are probably pretty expensive and out of my price range. But um, definitely check out both pages. And, and uh, I'm really looking forward to watching his uh, jersey and equipment page grow on Facebook. And uh, I'm always on the Enforcer Appreciation page multiple times a day. So definitely check it out. Now, the third show I will tell you is the Bucket Drop podcast. And the reason why I have, uh, I guess, bumped him to third. And it's not a ranking, it's just an order. And um, because I actually chatted with Bobby this week over text, I'm not sure the show's coming back. I hope it comes back. I'm going to do my best to push him to bring the show back. Bobby Longress, the Bucket Drop Podcast. So Bobby did 50 episodes, and he's been taking some time off. He had a beautiful, beautiful baby girl, and he's doing the right thing. He's, he's raising that little girl. She's absolutely gorgeous. Beautiful, beautiful baby. Um and uh, Bobby was taking some time away from his show. Uh, these are the formative uh, formative years, so obviously he's doing the right thing. But he did say that he'd come back in January of 2021. Now I'm not sure. He uh, He's given me the impression that it's pretty much up in the air. And personally, I hope he comes back. While we're waiting for Bobby to decide if he's coming back, please check out the Bucket Drop podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Like I said, 50 episodes. He's had some pretty amazing guests. He's also had me on there a couple of times. Um, so uh, I definitely, I support all the boys that I just mentioned. I support Bobby. And Bobby, if you're listening to this, you better fucking come back. I want to hear some more episodes in January. So uh, so definitely check out those three shows. Check out the uh, Facebook boards I told you about. Check out the YouTube channels. Check them all out. It's all great content from, from some pretty cool guys. And uh, I know that you'll appreciate it. So very quickly, uh, what's going on this week? Well, two things I want to tell you about. So 
sort of shitty news. I mean, obviously, this fucking COVID is affecting everything. And um, so I've had uh, a couple guests on, Mike Cornell most recently, and also Yannick Turcott. And they are, uh, they've both played with Bridgeport, uh, but they've also both played with uh, Worcester Railers, which is the Islanders ECHL affiliate. And earlier, earlier this year, um, the Atlanta Gladiators and the Norfolk Admirals had opted out of the season. That was two teams. It wasn't so bad, I guess. I mean, unless you play for those teams, I'm not, I'm not uh, downplaying it at all. It sucks if you are a player on those teams or if you work in the front office or whatever. If you work for the team, it sucks if they're not playing. Then on Wednesday, um, I think they're all in the same division, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe not, but um, six other teams opted out of the 2021 season. Uh, that would be uh, Adirondack, Brampton, Maine, Newfoundland, Reading, and Worcester. The Worcester Railers are opting out of this season. So I don't know exactly what I, – I know all the players under contract to Worcester are free agents. And I guess all the players under contract to the Islanders, if they don't make Bridgeport, I guess then they get loaned out. I don't know. But it's really shitty because it's not just the players. It's the people, like I said, that work for the teams. Uh, it, it's the people that you you know use these uh, organizations for secondary incomes, for primary incomes. It's just a, it's an awful situation. Um But, you know, even like I said, for the players, from a player point of view, these guys in the East Coast League are not making millions you know these are guys that are playing for the love of the game and with what is this now uh eight teams in the east coast league have have opted out of the season so that's eight less rosters that players have an opportunity to be a part of so it's really just um it's just a horrible situation it's really disappointing and um you know like i said i don't know i don't know what happens now with the uh with the players under contract to the Islanders, I guess, you know, Bridgeport, I guess will be a stronger team. Uh, they'll have more players to choose from, but you know, it, it, it's shitty in a sense where if you're a player who's been in the organization for a few years and you know, you're a fringe player between uh, Bridgeport and Worcester, you kind of know you're going to be with one or the other. And now if you don't make Bridgeport, who knows where you're going to end up? It, it's, it's just a horrible situation. Um, I, you know, my, my heart goes out to, uh, everybody affected by this because, um, you know, like I said, it's not just the players. I work in the entertainment business. My, I haven't worked since May, as you all know. And, um, you know, it, it, people, they look at, at athletics and they look at sports and they say, oh, woe is me. I, I can't play football or I can't play hockey, whatever. And and I think they're really just being short-sighted and looking at the actual games. And nobody's looking at all the people behind the scenes that uh, rely on this stuff to make a living. So um, really disappointing news to come out of the East Coast League uh, this week. And, um, you know, again... I, I don't know. I mean, they, they obviously know what they're doing. I don't know if this is, I mean, I think Atlanta and Norfolk definitely bowed out way too early, but the other six teams, they bowed out now. And I don't know if it's a situation where the owners feel like they're going to lose more money if they play. Obviously this is a, it's also a financial decision. I really don't know, but uh, it's really lousy news that, um, that came out this week uh, from the East coast hockey league. Well, Earlier this week, Monday, the NHL dropped their reverse retro jerseys. And oh boy, did the Islanders' social media blow up because, listen, 
Did they do a lot with their reverse retro jersey? Absolutely not. Could they have done more? Absolutely. But you know what? It's a reverse retro jersey. So if you if you want to break it down logically, the retro part is the 1980 jersey. And the reverse part is they reverse the colors. So technically, I guess they did what they're supposed to do. Now, there are a lot of teams out there that, that did some pretty cool stuff uh, with their reverse retro jerseys. Like, uh, as much as I um, can't stand, uh, you know, the idiot on Washington, uh, the Washington Capitals uh, jerseys are pretty amazing. I mean, really, really sharp. Um, I love uh, Winnipeg. I love what the Hurricanes and the Avalanche are doing. I just hate the fact that they're rubbing it in the faces of the fans of Hartford and Quebec, but there's no denying the jerseys themselves are unbelievable. I love it. But there was a certain segment of Islander fans who were sad because they didn't bring back the fishermen. And I don't really get into the uh, the online arguing about it, um, you know, but uh, my God. Let me clear something up that these people, the fishermen supporters, seem to always confuse. They think that boomers, it's only boomers that live in the past. It's, uh, oh, they didn't use the fishermen because all the boomers that live in the past. Here's the thing. There are some people who associate the fisherman jersey with the lousy hockey that was played while they're wearing the fisherman jersey. I can't deny that. There are some people that are always going to associate it. So what percentage? I don't know. I don't. When I see that jersey, I don't think of shitty hockey. I see a shitty jersey. I see a shitty jersey that never should have come into existence. There was never any reason for it. That's what I see. I don't think about the hockey that was played. I don't care if they won a Stanley Cup while wearing it. It's a fucking awful looking jersey. Okay. Now, to be clear, if you're not an Islanders fan and you like the jersey, fantastic. You have no skin in the game in terms of being a fan. So if you're a Red Wings fan or a Carolina Hurricanes fan or an Anaheim Ducks fan and you think the Islander Fisherman jersey is fantastic, more power to you. They're not your team. You didn't grow up with the logo. All you see is a jersey. Okay. I think the Red Wings jerseys are classic. I think their reverse retro jersey is absolutely hideous. Again, I'm not a Red Wings fan, okay? But I love their classic home and road jerseys. I think they're simple and they're classic, okay? But these people, these young people, and they're all young because I don't know many people around my age that like the uh, fishermen. They always go, oh, it's all boomers that are stuck in the past and they don't want to accept change. People, it's an ugly fucking jersey if you listen to the show and you've heard players that played during that era i always ask them about the jersey they all say the same thing it sucks okay the dynasty players don't like it the players who played in the jersey don't like it fans of a certain age don't like it it's only you the vocal minority on social media and let me clear one more thing up for you guys because you get the sense of entitlement. I know a lot of you don't like hearing no because you've never had to hear no. Social media is very big. It's a big thing. But how much of the fan base do you actually think is on social media? I, I got into a little disagreement with someone on Facebook about a post 
And he said, well, look at all the likes this post is getting and look at all the thumbs down, whatever. And I, I wanted to say to him, how many people do you think in the fan base are actually on Facebook? I know that people that are very active on social media would like to think that everybody is on there, but the truth is they're not. There are plenty of people. I would say more people than not are not on social media. So to say, well, look how many likes this post got. Look how many retweets this post got. People love the fishermen. That's idiotic. The majority of people in this world are not on social media. That's what I'm guessing. Again, I didn't do the research. But to say that, oh, look at look at how many likes this post got. This post got 1,000 likes. People love the fisherman jersey. They don't. They don't. It's just you guys. Okay? So what I suggest is to dry your eyes. Okay? And... There's plenty of fisherman merchandise in the Islander team store. They sell those ugly-ass jerseys, too. Buy your fucking stupid fisherman merchandise. Wear your wool hats year-round, okay? And just love it when when the, the MS, Islanders MSG Twitter account post stuff about the fishermen. Love it when it's Fisherman Friday. Listen, the team has done its best over the last few years to promote that stupid-ass logo. They're doing their best. And I understand they're there to sell merchandise. And they know that if they put that stupid logo on anything, you guys are going to buy it. But again, you're you're the vocal minority. You're the ones that complain about it. So you think that it's your this crusade that you're on is going to change things. Well, here's the thing. The general manager of this team is Lou Lamarillo. And most of us love him because of what he does. He's he's a winner. He's a Hall of Fame general manager. Lou likes to be involved in everything. Lou's involved in everything. Why do you think you don't see any jerseys, game jerseys for sale, games, game equipment for sale? Lou is involved in everything. There's no chance in hell a traditionalist like Lou Lamarillo, if that's Lamarillo, I don't know if I tripped over my own tongue. Lou Lamarillo is not going to bring that stupid, ugly-ass jersey back. Sorry, that was never going to happen. Maybe 10 years from now, God, I hope we don't get a gem like Kyle Dubas, one of these analytics nerds. Um, but whenever Lou steps down, hopefully, well, maybe his son will take over. Uh, I don't want anyone like Kyle Dubas that just knows numbers. Um, maybe we'll get a young GM that you guys will think are hip and everything, and he'll bring back the fisherman jersey. But for now, please, hurry up and go to your supermarket, because I know, especially here in New York, uh, the emperor wants to shut, he wants to shut everything down again. So before... Everything is shut down, and before all the paper products are off the shelves, go buy some tissues and dry your eyes, because once again, the fisherman, he's not coming back. He's just not. It's not happening. So dry your eyes. Enjoy the reverse retro jersey. They come out December 1st. I cannot wait to get mine. So I'm going to enjoy it. And all you people that are whining, I guarantee you at least 30% of you buy it anyway. Finally. It's my intro on a new episode, and I have to tell you about the Matt Martin watch. No news again. No news, and as I say, no news is good news. I won't spend much time on this, but Matt Martin has not signed with the Islanders, or if he has, it has not been announced, but he also hasn't signed with anyone else. So um, I guess it's the status quo. Again, I don't know if they're waiting for uh, Barzell, uh, for something to happen with him before they announce the other signings, but. Um, like I said, I'm not happy that 
we're waiting the uncertainty. Uh, there's a part of me that thinks it's only a matter of time. I don't know, like I said, if they want to square away things with Barzal before they do anything else. But um, no news is good news as far as I'm concerned. So no news on Matt Martin. And um, that's about it. So everybody buckle up. Here's my interview with Graham Townsend. Have a great week, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box. Today, it is my pleasure to, to chat with an old friend who I met back uh, during his Capital District Islanders days. As you've heard me say so many times on the show, um, not only is Dean Ewan my best friend, I met so many great, great people uh, through, through Dean, guys that played with Dean. And today's guest is another one in a long line of amazing people that I've met. And I kind of feel like I have to say big in front of his name because I'm sure he's heard that his whole life. And uh, today it is my honor to bring you big Graham Townsend. Graham, how's it going today? Hey, Joe, it's going great, man. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, my pleasure. I, you know, the one thing I will say about you, Graham, and your size, I mean, you're a big dude, obviously, you know that. And as someone who's who's seen, you know, I've been to a million hockey games and you see guys on the ice and they look big and it's all relative with the equipment and everything. And I'll never forget the first time I saw you off the ice. I'm like, Jesus, this guy is a tank without the equipment on, too. So uh, so it's nice that you were blessed with some big size there, Graham. Yeah, you know, I thank my, my mom and dad for that, obviously. But, um, you know, a lot of it, too, was uh, was really hard work and um, I started really working on my body when I was about 14 years old and focusing on that. So it uh, really paid off and it, it, it really advanced my game, just uh, taking care of the off-ice stuff. And and as usual, though, as is the norm, it's always the big dudes that are the, the cuddly teddy bears when you get them off the ice. And I know I know you're a good dude and everything. So um, first question I usually ask people is, um, and I, actually I'm going to put that off for a second because obviously – uh, you're born in Jamaica, and there are not many hockey players and professional hockey players born in Jamaica. So um, I'm assuming you were born in Jamaica and moved to Canada at a young age, correct? Yes. Um, my family moved to Toronto when I was three. So 1969, we made the we made the move to Toronto. Jamaica was getting a little tumultuous and with the politics and everything. So my dad didn't want any part of that. So we moved to Canada to sort to seek a better life and, and things worked out really well for us. So the usual first question that I ask people is if I had a time machine and I went back in time and I saw a young Graham Townsend on the pond, uh, the example I always give is when I was playing street hockey here in, well, in Queens, New York, and then later on Long Island, I was always Clark Gillies or I was always Bob Nystrom. Um, but if I was able to go back in time and I saw uh, a youthful Graham enthusiasm on the pond, who were you? Well, I, w- I was always Lanny McDonald or Daryl Sittler, <laughs> two yeah. Toronto Maples. Yeah, those are two pretty good guys to emulate. So, oh, absolutely. We we, we love the Leafs and we followed them. Uh, we, had, we had a deep passion for the team, and we followed. We knew everything about every player, and we we could we could name every guy, their numbers, and all that. I mean, we were really into it. Now, um, as I was doing the research for this, uh, I saw that one of the one of the your earliest inspirations was a player named Mike Marson who played for Washington Capitals, uh, and he played in Washington when they weren't very good. Uh, but Mike was always a, a real competitor, a really good player, a big dude that didn't back down from anybody. Um, when did you start? When did you start really taking notice of NHL players that uh, you know were sort of inspirational to you? Well, I would say that um, that started back when I was really young, you know, seven, eight years old, I guess. Um, 
And I had an opportunity to go to see a Leafs game. Me and, me and a bunch of buddies were outside of our apartment building playing street hockey. And um, some guy, just some, some adult, just asked us if we wanted Leaf tickets. And he held them up in, in the air. And there were two of them. And my, my buddy, uh, Kevin, grabbed them and said, yeah, I'll take them. And so now there were three of us left who, um, who wanted to go to the game. So Kevin said, okay, well, the first guy to come back down with permission from your mom's, uh, we'll go. So I ran upstairs real quick. And the other two guys didn't did budge. They said, uh, Graham's mom's. Graham's mom won't let him go, so we don't have to worry about it. So I, I come back down, uh, come back down. I said, "Hey, I can go." And the other two guys were shocked. So Kevin and I went to the game, and I got to see Mike Marsden play. We were sitting in the blue section, right behind the um, the Washington Capitals net. And that night, uh, Mike Marsden fought uh, Tiger Williams, and he also scored a goal and everything. And that was it for me. And I was like, "Wow, a black guy playing in the NHL!" I was just blown away. I got to see him live and. And that, that changed my life, and I decided at that point in time that I, I wanted to be an NHL player too. I was eight years old. That's all. That's a great story. And, of course, of course, being a black player, and especially now more days, uh, now, now more days, more nowadays, uh, I think it, it's the sport is more inclusive and it's more accessible for a lot of people. But, obviously, um, Willie O'Ree is a legend. And uh, if you could just talk about – uh, what someone like Willie O'Ree and and I think you know for people down here in the states everybody's aware of Jackie Robinson and I think movies like Forty Two and all the documentaries they kind of really highlight the struggles and and just and and struggles probably isn't a strong enough word but the the journey that a guy like Jackie Robinson took and of course uh, it seems like maybe over the last twenty years or so I, I think Willie O'Ree is is really getting the credit that he deserves and what does someone like Willie O'Ree mean to you? Well, Willie, Willie O'Ree means a lot. Um, we didn't hear anything about Willie as, as kids at all. To be honest, right. to tell you the truth, though, they, no one really, no one really um, brought that brought his career to light for us. And so it's, it's all about the fact that no one was really telling the story. To, to, and, and the story was important. And I'm not sure why it wasn't revealed to us. But um, um, to, to know that to know that he went through what he did and and was successful, and not only that, but his long career. And the uh, the miners and all that stuff, the way he, the way he carried himself, um, said, spoke volumes, you know. And so, like, when I got to meet Willie years ago, and it was a huge thrill. But there was another guy that um, that we did know about as kids. His name was Herb Carnegie, mm-hmm. and um, Herb was uh, could I guess could have been the first black player. Um, but at the time, before he came before Willie, and at the time, um, there's there, the NHL wasn't having it. There was there was not going to be any black players in the league, and in fact, uh, Con Smythe, the owner of the Maple Leafs, was famous for saying that um, he'd give anybody. This is back in like the 1940s, I guess. He said he said if anybody could give me a uh, ten thousand dollars to turn with uh, uh, Herb Carnegie white, I'd take it. But he was such a great player, and um, we all we all knew about him because he lived not too far from where I grew up. Okay, and um, so he 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 never did make it to the NHL, but. He was still one of the big inspirations for us because, like I said, he was from our community and everything like that, so we knew all about him. And so he was the first uh, – he, he, re- he started the very first hockey school in Toronto, and fortunately I didn't get to go to it, but um, but uh, he was a huge influence on my life too. That's amazing. So uh, we're going to start with your career. The earliest um, that I had was able to find – is uh, 1984-85 with the Mimico Monarchs of the COJHL. I have you down as playing uh, 35 games, 44 points, uh, 93 penalty minutes. So um, is this like um, junior, junior B maybe? What what level of hockey was this? And, and um, 
how was how was playing in that league? Yeah, it was junior B, and, and back in those days, um, if you wanted to play college hockey, you had two choices: you could either play junior B or, or tier two or tier two junior A. So, um, what happened was, I think when I was about fourteen or fifteen years old, I had learned about college hockey. Again, I didn't even know anything about college hockey. I'm um, at a young age. I, I had no idea. That all I knew was the OHL, which was called the OHA mm-hmm. back in those days. Mm-hmm. And um, so my, my mindset was that I was going to play in the OHA one day. And I remember I was in school. I was 14 years old. It was, it was career day. And so you had to, they, they gave you this book and you opened the book up and it had listed all these, um, all these professions. I mean, everything, you name it, teachers, doctors, you know, construction workers and all that stuff. So I'm reading through this this list of of hundreds of careers, and, and I couldn't believe it. I saw ice hockey, mm-hmm. and so I I clicked on that, and um, so I I, I went back and those didn't click on it. You, yeah. you filled out a, <laughs> a card, you filled out a, a computer card, and I, I chose doctor, I chose lawyer because my dad was 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 a lawyer, mm-hmm. and I chose hockey player. And so then you'd wait about a week for the results to come back from wherever they, they sent the cards and. The, the computer spit out uh, the requirements to, to do those careers. So the hockey career one said that I had to dominate hockey in my town. I had to play, I had to play junior a hockey did not mention college at all. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking when it said I had to be a dominant player in my city, I thought, Oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm far from that. Toronto's a, <laughs> Toronto's a big city and I'm not even close to being, I'm, I'm at the bottom. So I got discouraged about that really discouraged. Mm-hmm. So, Kind of sadly, I walked around for a couple of weeks, and, and then finally, I, I grabbed the Hockey News magazine one day, and it was the uh, preseason polls for the NHL and for college hockey. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I'd ever I'd ever read the Hockey News, and so I'm going through the Hockey News, and I'm, I'm get to, I get to the college section, and it's mentioning all these guys from Canada who are playing U.S. college hockey, and it mentioned scholarships and all that stuff, and that that caught my attention. I said, "Wait a second, they give scholarships for hockey? <laughs> like I knew they did it for football and basketball, but I had no clue that they offered scholarships for all these other sports." Right. So right away, and then it, it was reading that some of these guys were going off to the NHL. You know, it said something like St. Lawrence University lost so and so to to graduation. He's now playing for the Chicago Blackhawks, and I'm like, "What? You know, college guys can play can play in the NHL? I thought you had to play in the OHL." So. Uh, so anyway, I decided, I said, all right, well, I'm, I'm going to get, I'm getting one of those scholarships. So <laughs> I focused on that and I had no clue what it took to get a scholarship. So finally, um, a year later, I was talking to my coach, told him what I wanted to do. And he said, okay, well, if you want to play college hockey, you have to get to junior B at least mm-hmm. and then go from there. So the next season I tried out for a junior B team and I got cut. I had no idea what that level of hockey entailed, but I was, I was cut literally the first half an hour of practice and <laughs> sent back and. So, um, so again, I was discouraged and the coach said, well, listen, kid, um, we have another level that's below us. It's called juvenile. And so he says, we have a team that we, that we draw from. So if you go there and you play well, then maybe you can come play for us next year. So I said, all right, fine. So I went and tried out for that team and I got cut from that team. Oh. And that, that coach says, well, there's another level of juvenile. It's one level below us called juvenile A. So you can try it for that level. So, so I, I went to that level, tried out for a team, and I made it. But the hockey was terrible, and and I was in the locker room, and the kids were kind of talking about uh, you know partying and doing drugs and booze and stuff. And I wanted nothing to do with that, so I was going to quit hockey. So then finally, another another juvenile another juvenile team had a tryout. So the next level up was juvenile AAA. I'd already been cut from that level, so I I tried out for another team. I got cut from that team too. Wow. 
So I said, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm not playing hockey anymore. So I was, I was done. I was not, wasn't going to play. And um, so again, a couple days later, just kind of sitting around my, my, my apartment, uh, kind of sad and the hockey was over. And I got a call from the, um, the, uh, the second triple A team that, uh, that cut me and that coach said, Hey, listen, one of our kids has, has made, has made a junior B team and he's going to play up there this year. So we have one spot left. Would you like it? I said, absolutely. So I went to that team and, you know, just sort of started my journey there. And funny thing is, I, I wanted to get to know the guys. I was a new guy. So we had a team party and, um, at, at the, uh, the coach's house, but the coaches, the coach was gone for the weekend with his wife. And so his son, his son organized this party and there was alcohol there. And I wasn't, I wasn't into alcohol, man. I didn't want to drink. And, you know, right. my old man would kill me if I did that. So yeah. I, I refused to drink and the guys were kind of giving me a hard time. So that was the first time that the tough guy, Graham Townsend came out and <laughs> I didn't like being made fun of eh? And, and I, I just looked at one of the guys and said, listen, um, would you like to step outside and call me that name again? And mm-hmm. he said, no. So I, I established myself on that team and believe it or not, they made me one of their assistant captains and sort of my, my career kind of took off from there. Um, two years later, I made every single junior team in Toronto and, and that's when I made that Mimico team and, and, uh, and, and went to college from there. So that's kind of how it happened. I was, I was, I was pretty much done with hockey and just a, by a miracle, uh, a team had a spot for me that changed my life. That is, I mean, that is an amazing story. And, and I guess I always think, you know, like you ever, you ever sit back and think like your purpose and everything. And, and I guess at the time we never think when, when we're going through things, we never think of wh- why this is happening. And like you say, there were a couple of times where you were really down and everything, but you fought through it. And then, you know, you, you fast forward, maybe 30 years later, you're in a position and we'll get to this later on, as far as like, you're working with kids and everything. And, that that message that you just said, I mean, that's an amazing story. That your journey just to even get to to junior B, that is such an amazing story to really teach people never to give up. I mean, that like I say, you never realize it when you're going through it, and then at a certain point, you're not even caught consciously thinking about it. And maybe after you tell that story to a group of kids, you're like, maybe this is why I went through what I did. I, I think it is because um, you know, it's it's one thing that to to uh, to try to inspire people, but if it's hard to inspire them if they don't feel that you 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 see them or you that you've been through what they've been through or right. going through, and yeah. I think that's that, that's that's right because there are, there are several times in my career where I was facing the prospect of having to quit hockey. It wasn't just that one time; it was many more times after that. Yeah. And um, again, things things worked out. Even in my coaching career, it's, it was the same thing. I wanted to quit. And, and all that stuff, but then yeah. things just just happen, and it all really starts with setting goals, and that, that that's a powerful thing when you set goals and, and you set that set them in motion. It's it's almost impossible to fail, believe it or not. It's even even the way you phrase things. Like I, I got a chuckle when you said, "I'm going to get one of those scholarships." Like it, it just is. I think certain people would would it would be like, "Well, that'd be great if I can get a scholarship," but it just like you were determined, like, "Oh, I'm going to get one of those scholarships." And like I said, I don't even think you thought about thought about it when you said it. It's just that's how you felt. That was your drive. That was your determination. And um, if if my research is correct, you had offers from 15 schools. Is that correct? Yeah. The, the funny thing about that is you're right about that. I, I guess as a kid, you know, you know, it comes from my, my upbringing, actually, you know, my, my parents, um, well, not so much my dad, my dad, he, he left when I was 10, mm-hmm. but my mom, like this woman is, is just like the ultimate positive person. It's, it's like, she never once told me that I couldn't do anything. 
Yeah. Like I, I've heard parents say to their kids, well, you know, let's be realistic about the NHL. Like my mom knew nothing about hockey at all. Zero. Like yeah. She knew nothing, but she always, she knew, she just believed in her kids for some reason. And mm-hmm. she never once told us that we couldn't do anything. I, if I told my mom, I wanted to be Batman, she, <laughs> she, you know, she'd say, Oh, Hey, go for it, man. Mm-hmm. So, so when I was 16 years old, man, this is hilarious. I was 16 years old and I'm in the uh, cafeteria with my buddies. We're at this table and, we're all eating lunch, and for some reason, we all started talking about what we wanted to be when we grew up and when we left high school. And so my buddy Greg, he wanted to be a, a, a forest ranger. You know, He was really into outdoors and hunting and stuff, so he was, he was, he was all over that. And then this guy named Al, his, he, he wanted to own his own landscaping business. And at the time, he was doing that on the side, like mowing lawns and, and shoveling driveways and stuff in the winter. And then when it came to my turn, I said, I want to get a scholarship to play college hockey in the States, and then I want to play in the NHL. And you have to understand, I was playing A-level hockey at, at the midget level. Mm-hmm. So A-level is the lowest level uh, below, before house league. And quite honestly, I don't think there are very many guys that were playing midget A that made it to the NHL. So I don't even know why I, I thought I could do it, but I said it. And um, the guys, you know, criticized me. A couple of them laughed and said, there's no way you're going to make it. I'm like, why, why can't I make it? Well, you got to play AAA, especially by the midget level. Because now, that age, kids are, kids are going off to the OHA and, and all that stuff and establish themselves. I was playing, I was playing A-level midget. But I looked, at my, I looked at my friend Greg, and I just said, I said, hey, um, do you know anyone that plays in the NHL? He goes, no. I said, have you ever played in the NHL? He says, no. I said, then how do you know what it takes to get there? How do you know? And he just kind of laughed and said, you're crazy. You're not going to make it. So I left the cafeteria. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, I just stepped in it now. And if I don't make it, these guys are going to laugh at me the rest of my life. So I, I felt a little bit of pressure. And then um, and then what the funny thing is, I remember um, three years later, I um, I was really desperate to make it to college hockey. And I was I made that. I mean, like I said, I made every, every junior team I tried out for. And um, so now... I, I was, again, reading the hockey news. There was an article in there about this guy named Steve Bozak. Mm-hmm. And he was an undersized forward. He was playing at, I think it was Northern Michigan or Michigan Tech, one of the two. He, he was undrafted. And uh, in, in the article, it, he, he uh, talked about how he wrote letters to all 21 NHL teams and hoping for a tryout. So I remember reading the article thinking, this guy's crazy. What, what general manager is going to even read that letter? This is going to throw him out. You got to be drafted. That's what I was told. And uh, well, the LA Kings said, "Yeah, come on out to try out." And he went and tried out for the Kings, and he made the team and had a, I think, a nine-year career. Right. Yeah. Yep. So I th- said to my, so I said to myself, "Well, okay, um, if that worked for an NHL guy, I wonder if it would work for a college guy. What if I wrote letters to every college? Maybe that would work." So I went to my guidance counselor. I sold her the article. I said, "Listen, I want to do this." So she said, "Wow, that no one's ever done this before. That's a great idea, Graham." So. She goes, well, tell you what, she gives me a book. This book was like 10 inches thick, and it's, it listed every college in the U.S., oh like junior God. college, universe, everything. And what it did is it listed addresses for all the coaches for all the sports, uh, varsity sports at the schools. So, so we had no idea what schools had hockey, right, because mm-hmm. there's no Internet. So this book was my Internet. So I had to go. I started at A, you know, Arkansas, mm-hmm. flip through the pages, oh, no hockey there, scratch that one off. You know, Alabama, no, no, no hockey there. So I started going through the whole list and writing down all the names of the coaches and their fax numbers and everything, their addresses, right, mm-hmm. for hockey. 
So <laughs> whether it was Division Three, Division One, didn't matter. I was writing them all down. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know the difference between D three and D one. I, I had no clue. I just figured hockey was hockey, right? Right. So I'm, I'm writing on all these addresses, and it was a Friday night. I go to I had a hockey game, and after the game, I played really well. I got a couple goals. So after the game, the coach says, "Hey, uh, Townsend, there's a couple of college guys who want to talk to you." Wow. So I said, "What? Well, wonder what they want to talk to me about?" I had no idea what they want to talk to me for. So I go out there, and there's three guys. There's RPI coach from uh, from Michigan State and a coach from UMass Lowell. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went over and. Right then and there, they all offered me, uh, they wanted me to come down for a recruiting trip. Mm-hmm. And back then, when a coach asked you to come for a recruiting trip, we all knew it meant you were going to get an offer. Because yeah. they didn't like to waste recruiting trips on kids they didn't want. So I knew right away I was going to get a scholarship. So I went, uh, I got to school on Monday, and uh, we had homeroom. Our homeroom was our science class, and I used to sit beside my buddy Greg. <laughs> and so... I'm not one to brag and rub things in at all. I don't like doing that. I, I just feel like, you know, karma will come back and bite you in the butt if you do stuff like that. So I never did that. So he asked me how my weekend was. I said, I had a couple hockey games. He goes, oh, yeah, how'd it go? I said, well, uh, I got three scholarship offers. His job <laughs> offers. He's like, what? What would you say? I, go, I, got three scholars- I got three full ride offers, dude. And he goes, no way. I go, yeah. And I told him the schools and told him what the coaches told me. And and, and, it's, and over the next few weeks, uh, three turned to, to nine and nine turned to, to 15. and Wow. I, I'm sitting there with my head spinning. I'm, I'm sitting at lunch with Greg, to, you know, with all, all the letters in front of me. Hey, what school should I go to? <laughs> I don't know what to do here. You know, like, what do I do? So we all sat down. We talked about my, 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 my wants and my goals, my dreams, and I'm writing all this stuff. Now, my friends actually helped me pick the school. Wow. So <laughs> that's how I'm Greg, one of the guys that helped me choose RPI. So so that's how, that's how it happened. It was just... Uh, you know, not a miracle. I mean, I worked my tail off to, to make that happen. But, but by, by saying these things, by saying something out loud and telling other people, I feel that, that you know, that's almost like, that's almost like making and setting a goal. And now you've, you've, you've set it out loud and, and people are going to hold you accountable to what you say, right? So I, yeah. I felt that I felt that that's sort of a, something that's, that I've done many times in my life. I've made these bold statements. And, and I'm telling you, man, almost every single time I've said something like that, it's happened. And um, it's just weird how it's happened. And it's, it, it just put, I guess it just puts pressure on you and it pushes you towards that goal, whether you, whether you want it or not. You know, you say, you say something, you have to, you have to do it. So, so that, that's been sort of the theme of my life is when I say, say I'm going to do something, I got to do it. Man, we're 22 minutes in. We haven't even started talking about your college career and I'm ready to run through a wall right now. Like this is really, <laughs> really great stuff so far, Graham. This is amazing stuff. Um, so you went to RPI, and, and for people that, that uh, may not be familiar with it, RPI is one of the most renowned engineering schools, uh, at least in North America. I'm not sure in the world, but did you have any desire to uh, look into engineering at all? No, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a chiropractor, so I had to do pre-med. Okay. So I applied to all the different schools. I, I, I narrowed my choices down to, um, to RPI, Cornell, and Michigan. And so um, when I went... When I went to Cornell, like I, like I really wanted to go to Cornell, actually. I mean, I, I couldn't get into Princeton, Harvard, or Yale, mm-hmm. right? So Cornell was the only Ivy League school that accepted me. But um, so, I, so, I, so actually what I did was I, um, I committed to Cornell. I called the coach, and I said, okay, I want to come to Cornell. And so um, he got really excited over the phone. Because I guess, I, 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 I guess what I found out later was I was a number two recruited player in the country. 
Wow. Um, Miles O'Connor was a number one recruited player. He was a defenseman. Mm-hmm. So I, I essentially was a number one recruited forward. And I didn't I didn't know that. I thought I honestly thought everyone was getting tons of offers. I thought they offered stuff to everybody. I didn't have a clue, right? Mm-hmm. So so I, I decided to go to Cornell. The coach is all excited. And uh, then he says, he dropped a bomb on me, man. My, my heart sank when I heard these words. He says, okay, I'm going to send you um, some, a financial aid package. Oh. And, I, and I said, uh, what, what, what do you mean? And I, what do you mean financial aid? Um, I said, all the other schools are offering me a full scholarship. And he goes, oh, we, well, Ivy League schools don't offer full scholarships for athletics. We offer need-based financial aid. I said, what the hell's that? Yeah. Because well, we look at your family's finances, we put it in a formula, and we figure out what you can afford to pay. He said everybody that goes to the Ivy League school has to pay something. We don't, we never, we have endowments. We don't want to, we don't want money to be an issue. So everyone, can, we make sure everyone can afford an Ivy League education. I said, oh really? He says, all right, send me the package. So they send me the package, and in there, they wanted my dad's info too. You know, my dad hadn't been in my life since I was ten. Yeah, everything I've done, I, I, I got a job. I had to get a job when I was fourteen. And I paid for my own hockey. I'm telling you, I paid my own hockey. I used to shovel driveways in the wintertime. I made a ton of money doing that, by the way. I made a lot of money. Yeah. I'd, I'd shovel 10, 15 driveways a day yeah. uh, after a snowstorm. And I made so much money. I was rich, man, for, for a little kid. <laughs> I was loaded. I used to buy nice clothes and all that stuff, pay yeah. for my hockey, with, all with, all with uh, plowing driveways with my shovel. Wow. And so uh, I thought it was unfair that they were going to use my dad. My dad was a lawyer who did not support us. Right. And I thought, I, I, I told the coach, I said, listen, I noticed my dad's informa- information has got to be included. And I said, well, my dad doesn't support our family, so why, why, why do we have to include his info? He says, well, that's the way it is. It's money you have access to. I said, I don't have access to my dad's money. He is not paying for, for anything. Yeah. So I'm no financial support from my, my dad. So mm-hmm. he said, well, that's the way it is, Graham. I said, well, coach, you know, I don't think that's fair. So I'm going to have to turn down the offer. I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm not coming to Cornell. Mm-hmm. And he got really mad and said, and I said, I'm, I'm going to go to RPI. And he yeah. flipped up. I said that because yeah. he hated RPI. I said, well, you know, I'm, sorry. I'm not, I'm not paying for school. Yeah. So I hung up the phone. I called the RPI coach right away and said, Hey coach, I'm coming to RPI. He got excited, sent me the, sent me the scholarship papers. And I signed on the dotted line. And that's how, that's why I ended up at RPI. Oh, wow. Now that's a, another great story. So now I don't know how college hockey works in terms of scheduling. Does R- did RPI end up playing Cornell at all? Oh yeah, we're we're in the same league. Okay, and uh, we're in the same league. And um, oh yeah, so I, I end up playing at lineup. But the funny thing is, so RPI was the number one team in the country, right? Ranked number one at the time, and uh, they won the national championship. They, they, their their record that year before I got there was thirty five two and one. They 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 oh. they. The reason why Cornell hated them is because RPI crushed them every year mm-hmm. uh, over the you know the previous three or four years. But what happened was, so I'm going to RPI. I'm all excited. Now keep in mind, okay, Cornell had Joe Newendike. I remember when I when I went on the recruiting trip, he was a freshman, mm-hmm. and and I remember it's, it's such it's so funny how this, these things how these things work. But they they described him as this, we had this freshman who's a pretty good player. I remember that's what they said about Joe <laughs> Newendike, this freshman who's a pretty good player. And I, I didn't know who Joe Newendike was at all, right? right. Just he's a pretty good player. And I watched him play. And yeah, he's good. You know, who knew he's going to be a Hall of Famer and win three Stanley Cups, right? Right. And, and call the trophy. But anyway, um, RPI had a guy who was a pretty good player too. His name is Adam Oates. Yeah. So I'm thinking, big deal. Cornell has a pretty good guy, and well, Adam Oates is a junior. He's a Hobie Baker finalist, and I'm going to go learn hockey from that guy. Yeah. And so they had a bunch of guys like Oates on their team. Like the team was stacked. 
So I was so excited about going to RPI and learning and, you know, maybe being a fourth line guy and learning under OT and George Servinus and all these guys. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm committed to, I'm, I'm going to RPI. I, they had a trainer that, that we all, we all skated with in the summertime. And, uh, I was excited about doing that too. That was the only program that offered uh, power skating for the summer. So all the guys went to this guy named Paul Vincent down on Cape Cod. So I'm training down there and everything's going great. And one night um, Adam's in the, um, in the, the um, kitchen with Paul and a bunch of the RPI guys. There's a bunch of guys, the upperclassmen. I never, I never hung up with, hung up with the upperclassmen because obviously you're a freshman, you're a rookie, you're, you're to be seen and not heard. So I just minded my own business. But I heard them talking about Adam. He's saying that he had all these offers from NHL teams. And back then, no one left school early to, to turn pro. Right. You finished your four years, and then you went to the NHL. Well, he's talking about leaving or going a senior year. And then he mentions, well, George Servinus is going. Then he mentions the starting goalie. He was only a sophomore. He was the best goalie in the country. He's leaving. Oh, boy. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> the team's not going to – because they, they probably could have repeated as national champions. That's how good they were. Yeah. And I was excited about being a freshman on that team and have a chance to win a national championship. Freshman year is great, right? Well, now the core of the team is going to leave. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, we're going to be terrible. And that's exactly what it was. Yeah. We, we were not very good. We, we, we won 20 games, which was great. But we finished, I think, second in our league and lost in the first round to, to Clarkson. And we, we did beat Cornell that year, but um, but after that, Cornell crushed us every time we played them. So, oh. <laughs> oh yeah, we, we, we after 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 the, my, my sophomore year on, we couldn't beat Cornell. I think we, I don't think we ever beat them. I'm not, I don't think we ever beat them in six tries over my oh. last three. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, but, one of the, one of the um, things I like doing a, doing the show is that I get to ask you like players about their teammates. So um, your, fir- your freshman year at RPI, you played with a guy who you also ended up playing with in the Capital District for a few games, and that's Ryan Kumu. Yep, absolutely, yeah. What do you uh, yeah? What do you remember about Ryan? Well, Ryan Ryan's uh, one of my best friends, and at, at, at the beginning, Ryan and I didn't get along. And um, in fact, uh, so he came to school. I think about ten days into the school year, he was a because the coach had lost a lot of players at the last minute over the summer. Yeah, he was scrambling to find guys to fill these spots that these vacant spots. So, so Kuma was the last one of the last guys added. And he came in. He missed about the first, I think, the first week of school. So um, I got a call from the coach one one day, and he asked me to come to the, come to the rink. And it's funny how he chose me, but I guess. I guess he kind of always thought that I was a leader type because there, there were 10 freshmen and he called me to come in to meet Ryan and his family and he wanted me to show Ryan around the school and that day. So I went in to meet him and um, and so we Ryan and I, he was a quiet guy, but we, we never, we didn't really hit it off. But, mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, we had, we had some, we were two big guys who, who um, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we, we'd piss on the wall and, you know, this is my wall. He could piss on the wall. No, this is my wall. And so we were always stepping on each other's toes. And Ryan and I got into fist fights over the stupidest things, man. I remember one time we were having a party uh, um, at one of our one of our dorms, and um, Ryan was into heavy metal music, like like you know Metallica and all this mm-hmm. stuff, and I was into the you know Michael Jackson stuff. And so Ryan's playing this heavy metal music, and all the girls were getting mad and leaving the party. Mm-hmm. So I go into his room. He had he had this system set up where the, the system was in his room, and he had these wires all over the all over the house, eh? And, in the speakers in the living room all over the place this guy was really a technical whiz and so i go in i go dude all the girls are leaving because you're playing this crap you gotta you gotta put some dance music in he goes i'm not playing that crap 
So we get into a fight in his room. We're throwing haymakers. <laughs> and uh, so so finally, I'm trying to put this tape in, right, this mix tape. And he's having none of it. So we, we get into this big fight. And, and this, this room wasn't very big. And we're both 6'2", 6'4", and at 220-something pounds. And we're just smashing all his furniture and everything. So, so finally, a freshman, a freshman comes in and grabs us by the shoulder to break up the fight. He goes, guys, what are you guys doing? Your teammates. So all of a sudden, me and Ryan turn on this kid because he was touching us. And uh, I kind of calmly looked at Ryan and said, hey, Ryan, I think this freshman's touching us. And Ryan goes, yeah. And he goes, yeah, Graham, I think he is touching us. And he better get his hands off me before I, t- before I tune him. And I said, yeah, kid, get your hands off us before we tune you. And he looked at us and he goes, you guys are insane. And he walked away. So I finally, me and Ryan hugged. I said, Tubes, you want to play heavy metal? Play it all day, buddy. I love you, man. And then that was it. That was yeah. our relationship. We fight. We fought over books because we had to share books one semester, and we got into fist fights over books because he, <laughs> you know, he didn't give me my books. And he's supposed to get the book at eight o'clock, and he, he said, "I'm not done studying yet." But dude, the exam's tomorrow. So I, I kicked his door in and <laughs> kicked it off the hinge <laughs> and at it, man. And so finally, <laughs> half an hour of fun, he goes, "Okay, you can have the book, Powder. Sorry, man." So, so that, oh my god. That, that was, this day we're still best friends, but we, we don't fight anymore, thankfully. But back then, man, it was like every every year, two or three times we were we were going at it on the ice, off the ice, at frat parties, you name it, anywhere. But I love the guy; he's like my brother, you know. And we, we just uh, had a strange relationship. <laughs> well, if he's listening to this, I definitely would have been hanging out with him because that his music is more my taste. But I have to ask: Did Graham Townsend ever? do the Michael Jackson dances you ever do in the moonwalk you ever emulating his dance moves I gotta know well I I, I would do it and do it in isolation I would never show anybody but <laughs> the, funny, the funny thing is uh Joe you know like like because of that relationship I actually got into into heavy metal like I got the hair bands like I'd say by my junior year I was I was a hair band guy nice and, you know, I love Motley Crue and mm-hmm. Bon Jovi and all that and you won't believe it now um you know Ryan and I we cruise around the country following Kiss. Is that so right? Like, yeah, anytime, I'm in, anytime Kiss comes to Canada, if it's Toronto or Ottawa, I'll call Coombs up and say, hey, dude, you want to go see Kiss? He's like, oh, yeah. So we've seen Kiss together. Heck, we've seen him down in, uh, at, at SPAC up in Saratoga a few times. We've seen him in Ottawa a couple of times, and we just saw, we just saw the crew a few years ago, and we saw, we saw Kiss in Ottawa a couple of years ago as well. So we, wherever, wherever they play, close to close to he's from kitchener mm-hmm. so um we've seen we've seen both those bands several times he and i That's so like he's, awesome. he's, dude i follow kiss everywhere i love kiss and so <laughs> i got all their t-shirts i got a t-shirt from every concert i've ever been to i got like 13 t-shirts and like i'm i'm crazy and Bob, motley crew forget about it it's one of my favorite bands and they and i can't wait to see them next summer oh. i had, had tickets had tickets for motley crew and def leopard this summer and i Obviously, it got it got postponed. So, yeah. so Ryan got me into that stuff, and he's the reason why I follow these bands around now. <laughs> that is unbelievable. That's so great. Um, so, how did the only black guy in the it's hilarious? <laughs> <laughs> so, you're easy to find. If he goes up oh, to get yeah. if he goes up to get some some food or beers or something, he'll, he'll be able to find you nice and easy. Oh, dude! Last time when Kiss performed at SPAC, me, Ryan, and his brother went. And um, there was this video, it was Gene Simmons' like 65th birthday or something, right? So we all sang happy birthday to Gene Simmons. And this video appeared online from that concert. And there's someone that was panning through the crowd, mm-hmm. watching you know, as everyone sang happy birthday. And I saw myself, and it wasn't <laughs> hard to see me. The only black, sort of, the only black guy in the crowd it was hilarious. And right, I, I, you could, I could see myself. Yeah, there I am. 
Oh my it was God. Like, it grows up. It was hilarious. It was awesome. I, lo- I love that band, man. They're awesome. So uh, I can thank Ryan for that. That's fucking great. That's so great. So how did you find the adjustment to the college game coming from uh, Junior B? How, how was that uh, adjustment for you? It was tough for me because um, the, 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 the style of hockey the coach had us play at was nothing that I even recognized. Um, he, he played this. Like, it's funny because I, at the time I, I hated, hated playing a system. But if you look at the way the game is played today, that's how he coached us back in 1985. I mean, it was actually it was actually years ahead of his time. But I hated I hated that system. I hated the style of play, and I I couldn't adjust. I only scored one goal. I mean, I, I was I was a goal scorer in junior, and now all of a sudden I come to college and I get one goal in in 30 games, and I just I just couldn't adjust to the system. And it was it was a defensive style system, and um, I like to score, man. I want you know I wanted to light it up and. And so we struggled. I remember when Joey Juno came to RPI. Mm-hmm. Joe, like with a guy like Joey Juno, if you're a smart coach, you let him go. Yeah. He was scoring three points a game, and we were winning. We were winning. We were like, uh, I think we were eight and four, nine and three by Christmas because of Joey. Yeah. He had 27 points in the first, you know, 10 games or whatever it was. Jeez. And um, so after Christmas, we come back, and he throws Joey on the fourth line. Oh my with, God. You know, Guys, that you know, I mean, our fourth line was okay. They were, you know, they were college division one players, but they weren't. They weren't. They, you know, he, he didn't belong, belong on that line. We ended up with only forty five points that year, wow. and um, and we went from the second half of the year we were like five and fifteen. So figure it out, coach. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you got this guy that's ripping it up, and you're winning because of him. We're riding this guy's coattails, and then all of a sudden he he cuts his legs out from under him, and the team goes right down the tube. We went from second to, to eighth place within you know several a couple of weeks. And then lost in the first round. I think we lost to Harvard that year. Um, we got smoked by them. I mean, there's a team that. So the, the funny thing is, when my class left, um, you know, you're probably going to come up. You know, you'll probably talk about the, the thing that happened between me and my coach. Yeah. After when my class left, we had uh, four really good defensemen in, in my class, and the team was left you know, with a depleted blue line. But they went to the um, ECAC championship game, and because of the, the defense, they lost by a goal to Colgate. And Colgate went on to the national championship game that year against Wisconsin and lost 8-3. Mm. Well, our, that's how close we were to getting to the national championship. We were that good. And, um, you know, the coaching situation just just crushed us every year. I mean, it was, that was you could definitely blame that on the coaching situation, the, yeah. the way he manages assets. and It was, it was, it was a horrible management of assets. And, um, you know, I mean, you have a guy like Joey Juno, all the coaches out there, Mark my words. If you've got a player that talented, don't interfere. Let him do. The, the guy's an artist. Let him let him create, and you'll win hockey games. You know. And Joey Juno was a damn artist. When when you know when I before we started recording, I basically told you you know I'm going to ask you about some teammates, and they're mostly you know physical players, things like that. But for a guy like Joey Juno, and I remember when he broke into the NHL. I mean, what was I mean? Would you ever find yourself on the bench? watching him play and just like your jaw drop just watching a guy like that because he dominated at the nhl level so i can only imagine uh at the college level it must have been sometimes pretty surreal watching a guy like that play oh your jaw dropped every time he's on the ice the things that that guy could do and the, 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 the things he did in games was nothing compared to what he did in practice i mean he I played D, and, and I, i'm telling you every time he did one-on-ones i never stopped joey juno one time not once <laughs> Like I, I swear, I swear. After he finished putting the puck under my stick, through my legs, uh, you know, down my throat, not my arse, 
Uh, <laughs> he'd, he'd undress me. All my gear was you know, scattered all over the ice, and I didn't know what happened. I was naked by the time he scored. So he was so, so good. I mean, it was ridiculous. You, you could not stop Joey Juno. And, um, and you know, the funny thing is, when I remember um, before he got to RPI, there was another guy that, that uh, you couldn't stop. His name was Joe Noondike. I remember when Joe – I got switched to D when I was a sophomore. And I, 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 was, I was just starting to have a my, my turn, turn my career around. I'm, I'm averaging a point a game through the first five games as a, uh, as a, as a forward. So I finally like, figured out coach hockey. And the coach makes me a D. So the rest of the year, I just struggled. I mean, I was terrible. And that's what I mean. My first couple weekends, and I got Joe Newendike flying down the right wing. I'm playing. I'm on the I'm on the left side. He's flying down the right side, and oh my god! So I I I it off the blue line. I was like two zones ahead of him, and he just freaking undressed me and threw a, threw a rocket pass back door to this guy named Dwayne Mosier and just roofed it. And I'm thinking, oh my god, like I I can't play the, I can't play defense, but I I learned how to play the position. I worked on it all summer, and I became the, the, one of the best defensemen on our team and one of the best team in the league. So I put up some really good numbers my junior year. But um, but yeah, it was, it was a struggle, man. Like switching positions, so I finally figured it out. And then the coach uh, throws a monkey wrench in my plans and makes me a team. It took me uh, another season to figure that out. It was it was just like one one monkey wrench after another. You know, they just I just couldn't catch a break. It seemed. So another guy that. Yeah, you ended up playing with as a sophomore that you again like Kumu that you ended up playing a few games with in uh Capital District was a guy named Derek DeCosti. Do you have any recollections of him? Yeah, D- Derek uh came in from uh Rome Free Academy, which is a prep school in, in New York. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, Derek, you know, he was he was a couple of years behind me. So like we didn't never really it was RPI was a weird place, man. We, we, you know, there was a real a real class like separation it seemed like you know the, the juniors were juniors and the seniors they kind of hung together but but Derek's class I, I never, never really connected with Derek much uh, it was a guy from his class with a guy named Tony Haina he became he was one of my roommates so he and I are still very close to this day but you know Derek Derek had Derek had his, his click and I had my click and so we really never re- talked much to be honest with you so I don't really know much about Derek believe it or not he's even though we were teammates mm-hmm. and um, as much as we tried to to galvanize the team it was such a a toxic environment that guys would, would just sort of find their little corner mm-hmm. of, of solace and, and safety and um, wouldn't come out of it. So, you know, for whatever reason, we just never connected really. Now uh, in two of your four seasons with the team, you did lead the team in penalty minutes and not big numbers at all. I don't think guys put up huge, huge penalty minute numbers in, uh, in school, but um, I'm assuming you guys were wearing full cages and everything, but did you ever end up in any scraps in college at all? No, you weren't. You weren't allowed to fight. I remember yeah. the first uh, one of my first games. I I tried to fight a guy from um from St. Lawrence. I punched him in the face, and I got a double minor for roughing. And when I got back to the bench, the coach said, "If you ever do that again, you will never play another game for RPI." So that was it. I was, I, I never did it again. <laughs> uh, so how what did it mean to you? And I, and I guarantee you, I know the answer just just from speaking with you in the past and speaking to you now. What did it mean to you as a junior to be named captain of the team? It was, um, well, it was, it was scary because um, being a captain at RPI was, um, it, 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 being a captain is an honorable thing, right? But being a captain at that school was hell. So oh. I didn't want to be captain. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't expect <laughs> I, this. <laughs> I, I, 
wasn't going to tell the coach no because that would make it worse. But when he made me captain, I was like, oh, damn it. <laughs> because I saw what the captains went through. It was hell. Because what happened was, um, so, so, so my coach, so my coach, um, he, okay, this is weird. My career is really weird there. You won't believe the stuff that happened. But um, so, I'm, so I'm a freshman and I come in highly touted. You know, all the articles, RPI's number one recruit, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, looking back now, I know that definitely created some jealousy. And, and then the coach made it worse. Um, my birthday was October 23rd. Mm-hmm. The dude has a, a birthday party for me. You didn't have any birthday parties for any other player on that team but me. Wow. So that, that created some problems. So then what happened was the golden boy, the golden boy, a.k.a. me, uh, decides one night at a frat party that he's going to stay, he's going to miss curfew. You know, I had, I had a few, wasn't, wasn't an experienced drinker and all that. I had a few and I just decided, you know, I'm not going to miss curfew. I'm, I'm going to miss curfew. And it was a Saturday night and I'm thinking, ah, we don't have anything Sunday. So what's the big deal? And a few other guys stayed out with me. I got caught. So I got punished for it. Um, me and the other guys had to get up one morning and run five miles at like literally 5 a.m. Oh. And um, so that got back to the coach. So now, now the coach hates me. Mm. So um, finally, after, um, few a few weeks of the season i'm at so i'm at practice right practice is over we're just kind of like doing some drills on our own at the end of practice and the coach is standing on the bench and he calls me over to him so i skate over and and he says to me he goes graham in a very calm voice okay not me not yelling goes graham you are the biggest recruiting mistake in the nation i regret bringing you here dude i almost started crying man Wow. And he points down, the assistant coach is standing on the bench too, the guy that recruited me says, you see that man right down there? He points to, he points to Jim Stewart. And he goes, people in our business are questioning his recruiting ability. They're blaming him for bringing you here. Wow. He goes, you know, you should quit. <laughs> so what? he says, that, so I'm like, oh, and I'm like, okay, uh, uh, can I go now? Yeah. <laughs> So I leave, right? And dude, I'm I'm serious. I want to cry, but I'm not going to cry in front of all the guys. Eh? I, I'm yeah. crushed. Yeah, I'm crushed. So so after that, so now so now we play at Princeton. And I remember the score. We won six four. Now RPI was used to blowing Princeton out. Okay, so the fact we only won six four, the coach was upset about it. So he, he blamed me. I'm in the locker room. He's yelling at me. I'm the reason we only won six four. Says, all right. I know. I know. I obviously I played bad. I guess so. So we get on the bus, right? And he says, no talking the whole way back to school. So it's a three-hour drive. You're not allowed to talk. You can't have your headphones on with music, nothing. It's got to be, you can hear a pin drop on that damn bus. So we get back to Troy, and uh, the bus pulls up to, in front of the rink. So I'm, I'm feeling down. I sat in the back of the bus. I wanted to be nowhere near the coach. So I sat at the back of the bus, and my, my, my teammate, Maurice, Maurice Mansi, he tried to cheer me up. He saw that I was really depressed, eh? So he tells me a joke. He whispers it, and I start laughing uncontrollably. It's so freaking funny. And the coach heard me from outside the bus. Oh. Steps on the bus. He looks back. He goes, hey, who's laughing back there? Because he wanted silence, right? Yeah. I go, it's me, coach. Townsend, is that you? I go, yes, coach. He says, how could you be laughing after the way you played tonight? He goes, now I know how bad that you want to play here. So, he, he, so now I'm thinking, I look at Mo, I go, hey, thanks a lot, Mo. He says, hey, sorry. So I get off the bus, and, and my, my main nemesis on the team was a senior. His name was Jeff. I hated this guy, okay? And if he's listening, I'm sorry, but I did. And so <laughs> what happened was there were a few guys on the team that used to pick on me, 
And so I didn't want to, I didn't want to like do anything. Cause usually where I grew up, right. If someone was picking on me, if you were picking on me in school, like I would say, Hey, listen, we're going to meet out at the football field after school today. And we're going to take care of this. Like I, I had no hesitation. If you picked on me, if you were bullying me in any way, we were going to fight. That was it. Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't know what to do at RPI. Cause I figured if I did, this guy was a senior. If I fought him, maybe all the seniors would jump me. I'd get my ass kicked by all the seniors. Right. So, so what I did was, I just, I, you're going to, you, you remember Billy Madison when he went up to that guy he picked on in high school? Yeah. And it's Steve Buscemi. Yeah. And he apologized that Steve Buscemi had this list. Well, mm-hmm. well, I had a list. It was a mental list. And that guy was on it. So, so I get off the bus, right? And, uh, I'm just waiting until the end of the school year. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to tune this guy. So we get off the bus and he's got this big smile on his face. He says, You are in trouble, man. I go, Yeah. What I do this time? Well, the coach told us all here, he points to all the guys outside the bus. He told us all not to talk to you anymore. I said, okay. So we get to unpack my stuff. And the next day I'm walking on campus and I say hi to somebody. A guy walks right past me. <laughs> so like everyone, no one was talking to me on the whole team except my, my best friend who, who, who talked to me and this guy named John Haley. The only guys that said hi to me who didn't talk to me. So, so I was like, okay, no problem. I'm gonna, that, that, that guy's at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. So the, um, so we get to, uh, we get to Christmas and, um, we're going to go play in the Great Lakes tournament. So we get to go home for like a day. And uh, this guy, Jeff, says uh, he's going to drive me He's going to drive me to Detroit because the team was going to meet us in Detroit. All the guys are getting there on their own. So he says to me, I'm going to meet you at such and such an intersection at 9 o'clock. If you're not there at 9, I'm leaving. But he's just being a complete jerk to me. Eh? So, I, so I get there early and everything and get in the car. The whole way to Detroit, it's a four-hour drive. He's just ripping me, this guy. Eh? Just, just like. I want to, I want to, like, I'm serious. He's so lucky I didn't sucker punch about that high. Like, I, was, like I, 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 look, I just looked at him a couple of times. I see his jaw. I'm, I'm just saying, man, I could break that jaw right now, yeah. you know, but I, you know, we would have crashed and died. So I didn't do it. So we get to, we get to Detroit and uh, we're at the Renaissance center, nice hotel. And uh, coach is handing out tick, uh, the, the keys for our rooms. Eh? And so comes down, there's four of us left and there's no more keys. So he says, oh, yeah, you four guys, you have to go with Coach Peters. So Coach Peters pulls up in a minivan. He takes us about 30 minutes outside of town, and we're at this little, like, cheap holiday inn. So he says, okay, guys, uh, I'm going to come back and pick you up at 9 for practice. We're going to practice at Joe Louis Arena. So uh, get in the hotel. It's one room, two beds, four dudes. Oh. So we look at each other. We look at each other. We go, okay, guys, we're gonna all going to sleep uh, head to feet. Yeah. but." But and don't yeah. tell anybody. <laughs> so that's how we slept that night, eh? And so we get to the rink, and uh, we practice. The, the Red Wings are on before us. We're watching the Red Wings, and we're in awe of these guys. And so then we get out there, and we practice. And so now we're back at the hotel, and we're in, we're in the lobby of the hotel. And he's got these chairs set up like for a meeting in rows right in front of the elevator. Okay, not in the conference room, in the lobby. So we sit. There's three chairs at the very front of the front of the um of the of the of the chair of the of the of the room or whatever and he goes towns and hussy nancy you guys sit there so we all sit in these three seats and our teammates are behind us in rows and we we, we proceed to have a team meeting so there's people waiting for the elevator and they're looking at what these guys doing here and the coach is ripping into me me maurice and tom and he's trying to get us to quit right because at this tournament there's michigan state michigan and uh, michigan tech now michigan state and michigan both recruited me and they, they, uh, Michigan Tech recruited Tom Hussey, and Michigan recruited Maurice Mancy. So he's trying to get us to, to leave, 
says, hey, these coaches are here. You can go talk to them, and you can transfer right now. And back then, you could transfer without sitting, sitting out a year. So Tom Hussey's nodding his head. He gets up. He goes up to the Michigan Tech coach. They take up. He leaves. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, okay, I could go to Michigan. But uh, you know what? I'm going to stay. Yeah. So I'm, so I'm going to stick it up this coach's butt. I'm going to prove this guy wrong. So that year, it's miserable. I come in as a sophomore. I'm regretting not leaving now, but I come in as a sophomore. And um, we, uh, one of my teammates got, got uh, kicked off the team. We, we had to do these workouts in the summer, and the coach had asked us to send the workouts in, like handwritten what you did, every week. Okay? And, and this, guy, this guy didn't do it, so he was kicked off the team for not sending his workouts in. So we thought that was unfair. So me and the other sophomores went to the coach to talk and, and support this guy. Well, the coach turned it on us and blamed us for the, the, the hockey program's demise because the team wasn't the program wasn't very good anymore, and he blamed us for it. So now finally, I'm midway through my sophomore year. It's miserable. The coach is ripping on me and all my classmates. And all of a sudden, I'm in the locker room, and, the, and one, of the, one of the captains, uh, senior, he goes, hey, coach wants to see you. I'm thinking, oh, man, he's going to cut me. So I walk down the hallway. I sit in this chair that's in front of his desk. The other two captains sit down. And the coach tells me he's going to make me an assistant captain. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I was kind of relieved. Oh, my God. I thought I was being kicked off the team. I swear to God, man. And so he says, I'm an assistant captain. I said, okay, cool. So he goes, I want you in, in on every captain's meeting before practice. you got to be here at 2.30 every day. I said, all right, fine. So, so that's how I kind of knew he was going to make me the captain the next year. And, and I, I saw, I got to see firsthand every day what the captains went through. Now I know why those guys were such jerks to us. Yeah, and after a year, I'm thinking, oh my God, he's going to make me captain. I don't want to be captain after after seeing what happened to those guys. But oh. it was too made me captain with the two other guys, and it was a year of hell, man. And when he took that a, that C away from me the next year, I was so freaking happy. <laughs> my roommate became the next captain. I was like, I was like, dude, you're screwed, man. <laughs> I started <laughs> laughing. Good luck, dude. I was like, you're, you're in for hell. And he's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Yeah. So you'll see. <laughs> so I think. Um... Whether it's whether it's uh, roommates on the road or you know, I think times are different. Like you know, you were even talking about when you were researching colleges and how you got that gigantic book. Where it's not like it is now, where it's the internet. And I think you know, with the uh, today's current players, like I'm sure they all have their phones and they all have their Xboxes and this. But uh, back when you were in college, uh, you when you had a roommate, you guys had to find stuff to do. And one of the things I love about doing this show is reaching out to former teammates of guys and, and getting their opinions. And one guy who I reached out to, a guy that I'm a fan of, I saw him play in the American League with the Phantoms and uh, with Hershey, is Bruce Coles. And uh, <laughs> I, I reached out to Bruce, and uh, I asked him, you know, I said, you have any memories of Graham? You know, and most of the time when I reach out to these guys, I, I say, give me something that's going to make them laugh. Like, to me, that's what it's all about. You know, I mean, unless there was some – crazy incident or, or something like that i said i want something that's going to make this guy laugh so i don't know if anyone's going to top this I, this made me laugh so this is a direct quote from bruce graham is a fantastic guy who would do anything for you he is genuine and sincere he loves hockey and helping people i truly mean it and stand by every word a funny story we were college room college roommates and at least once a week he would order wings to his room and before ordering he would ask me if i wanted any and i would always say no but before the order would come to the door, I would meet the guy outside and take the order, eat half of them, and leave them at the front door and knock. 
Eventually, he would catch on and chase me, always saying, if you eat any more of my wings, I'll kick your ass. We've been best friends ever since. So can you confirm that to be true? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that guy used to drive me insane, man. I mean, I used to. Oh, yeah. Colsey. I love I love the guy. Um, one of my closest best friends. He's, he's a brother to me. And uh, oh, yeah, he did that all the time. Like, pretty much every time. <laughs> and for, for people who aren't familiar with with Bruce, I mean, uh, you know, that's where I saw him, like I said, in the American League. And, you know, Bruce isn't as big as you, Graham, but but he played a tough game and he didn't take shit from anybody out there. And he was sort of an antagonist at times. Was he that way in college also? Oh yeah, and and then some. Um, yeah, Bruce Bruce uh, played the game hard, and he was definitely he was a great player, a really great player, and um, made our team better instantly as a freshman, even, and um, had a big impact. So yeah, he was he was the same way in college, absolutely. Now, uh, as we go to your senior year, and this is something you alluded to already, I think uh, I think the biggest uh, the biggest thing that happened in your senior year, as far as newsworthy stuff, is there was an incident with your coach Mike Odessa. And for me, the more important than the incident, and, and the thing that really registered with me, um, is the way you handled it. You know, and I think nowadays, um, you know, it's a different world now than it was back then. And I think nowadays people are just, uh, you know you know, gung-ho, you know, we call it cancel culture, whatever it is. But, uh, you know, if you could please describe what happened, but also, like I said, more importantly, and the thing that really I was so impressed with is the way you handled it. So if you wouldn't mind, could you go through that for me? Yeah, well, um, so to paint the picture, um, it's got to set it up, I guess. Uh, so Bruce and I were roommates when he was a freshman. I was a junior. I was a captain of the team. I was a tri-captain. And um, so we were roommates. And Bruce was always like a, he's a very free spirit. Okay. Uh, to, uh, to put it mildly. And so going to our, my senior year, we, we, we coach like to, like to spread us around a little bit. I didn't, he didn't like the, he didn't my guys forming clicks. So we had different roommates every year. And so my senior year, Bruce and I weren't roommates, but what happened was he, uh, we, we were, we were, we were forbidden uh, to go downtown to bars in, in downtown Troy. We weren't allowed to go down there, but every once in a while, We'd sneak down there, you know, and and sure enough, someone from d- down there would, would would rat us out to the coach. Well, so Colsey ended up um, finding this other bar off the beaten path. It was a, literally a hole in the ground, and he would go there, and um, eventually he got caught, and so the coach kicked him off the team for two weeks. Okay. And then when he came back, coach wanted me to room with him because he wanted me to kind of straighten him out, you know. So he, he wanted me to hang around with him all the time and make sure he was following the rules and. Because we you know we had we had to get up early for breakfast as a team, and so I, all these little things. So I, I was bas- I was babysitting Bruce is what I was asked to do, and I did what I was asked to do. So now we're we're playing Brown University at home, and um, I had scored the winning goal in the game. And so after the game, um, or after so so I was coming off the ice. The guys were congratulating me and all that stuff, and I, I, and Bruce was one of those guys. So later on in the game, br- both Bruce Coles and uh, Joe Juno were being benched. Wow. And, and this, so here, there are two best players, by yeah. the way. <laughs> they're being benched. So, um, so I'm sitting beside them, and they're and so they're getting bored. I eh? sitting on the bench, and they're they're looking up in the stands at girls and stuff, talking about, you know, this girl and that girl. So I got pissed off because they're, you know, it was a distraction. So I just yelled at them, said, "Hey guys, pay effing attention," or whatever, something like that. So the coach heard me say that, and and told those two guys to go take a shower. They're done. You're out of here. Get out of the building. Wow. So this is like the second period. So they're gone. 
So the game ends, and uh, I was being interviewed for the because I got star of the game, all this kind of crap. And so I'm being interviewed. I come back in the locker room, and um, and the the way our coach did things was after every game, he would he would talk to each player in front of the whole team and share his his uh, perspective of how you played. Okay, give a, give you feedback, and I'll tell you. It was 99, 99.9% negative. We could win a game 10 nothing, and it's negative, okay? So I'm a senior. I'm so used to this, and he's, he's in the middle of his, his tirade. And I'm thinking, like, I, I honestly was so oblivious to this guy by the time I was a senior. I was numb. I wasn't hearing one word he said. In fact, when he talked to me, well, I, I, even though I looked him right in the eye, I heard Charlie Brown's mother. It was like, blah, 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 blah. I swear to God, I did not, I, nothing he said registered because I was, I just drowned him out. So finally, I'm laughing to myself. I've got my full gear on and he's going, he starts at number one, number two, three, four, and then he gets, I'm number 12, right? So he's, he's getting to me and I'm laughing. I'm saying to myself, I can't wait to hear what this clown has to say about me. I mean, I got the game winning goal. What's he going to say? Right? Yeah. So he gets to me. And usually he reels off his comments like, bam, bam, bam. Like, it's just a flow. He just, bam. And he gets to me and he stops. And I'm thinking, holy smokes, man. He's, he's stumped. And he's looking at me. I, I looked him, I used to look him right in the eye. Sometimes I used to look right through him. You know what I mean? Like, I was, I, I didn't want him to think that I was, I was afraid of him. So um, he looks at me and he says, and you, Townsend, the way, what I saw between you and Bruce Coles after you scored that goal made me sick to my stomach. Like, I still remember the words like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. And he goes, um, I've been watching you two guys a lot lately. You've been hanging out. You've been hanging together quite a bit. And I remember thinking, yeah, stupid. You're the one that told me to. <laughs> so, like, what are you talking about? You know? So then he goes on and on. He says, you know, instead of the two of you, two, the, instead of the two of you getting together and calling the NAACP and forming a coalition against the rest of us, because you ought to bloody his nose. Oh, I'm like, I, well, I, so at the time I'm thinking, this is how dumb I was. I'm like, what, what's the N, N, NC, what's the, uh, I said, what, what's the NCAA got to do with this? Yeah. <laughs> but he said, NCAA. He, he said, and he, and like, what, what the hell is the NAACP? I didn't even know. Yeah. So I mean, I'm Canadian. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't know any of this stuff. Right. So anyway, um, he says, if you don't stop acting like a, you know, the N word, yeah. I'll start treating you like one. So I got pissed. Yeah. The first inclination was I was going to, I had my hockey stick in my hand and I was going to, I was going to attack him. I was the first thought I had in my mind, but, but a year before this happened, he had a meeting with me in his office. I was, I was a junior and he asked me what I wanted to do with my life and all this crap. So I said, all right, well, I want to get my degree. And I was just trying to get out of this meeting as quickly as possible. So he kept on asking more and more questions. So then finally I decided to tell him the truth. I said, well, I want to be, I want to be, uh, I want to play in the NHL. And he goes, no, you're not good enough. You'll never make it. In fact, I tell all the scouts that you suck. I said, all right, cool. What? So he said, what else, what else do you want to do? I said, okay, well, I want to be a chiropractor because that's what I was going to school for. Yeah. And he goes, no, nope, you're not smart enough. I said, all right, well, listen, coach, I got to go. So can I leave? <laughs> he yeah. let me go. So I walk across the street to my dorm, and I'm bawling my eyes out, thinking, oh, man, he's telling all the scouts I suck. There goes my NHL dreams, you know, up in flames. So I was going to quit. I called my dad, my, my family that night, said, I'm going to quit hockey. I'm not going to play my senior year. I'm just going to go through the motions and hopefully he'll cut me because I didn't want to lose my scholarship, right? So I wanted to keep my money. So I told my mentor, same thing, I'm quitting. And this guy, this this guy, Paul Vincent, put so much time into my development. And he was really upset when I told him that. But I told him I'd I'd still come and work for him in the summer because he needed instructors for his hockey school. So the first week of camp, I was true to my word. I wasn't training. I was just goofing around, partying, having a good time for the first three or four days. 
And I was not going to train all summer. I was going to go back to training camp, 50 pounds overweight. I didn't give a crap. So uh, he had me talk to a scout from the, from the, the um, New Jersey Devils. And this coach, this scout had coached at Princeton and tried to recruit me there. He really liked me and, and really kept tabs on me over the years, right? So as a scout from New Jersey, he was still keeping tabs on me. And then Paul told him I was going to quit. He wanted to talk to me. So we went for a walk. And he said, so, so why are you quitting? I said, well, I don't get along with my coach. He goes, oh, yeah, really? I've heard that. I said, yeah, I know. And I said, he, I said, he, told, he told me he was going to tell all you scouts that I suck. He says, well, yeah, he does tell me you suck, man. I said, well, there you go. See? So he says, yeah, but he, so this, is when, this is when my eyes were open. He said, I want to I explain to you how scouting works. See, we don't listen to coaches' opinions on players. Says He goes, I've got two eyes. I don't need a coach to tell me who can play hockey and who can't. That's my job. I know who can play and who, can, who can't play. So I don't listen to your coach on that stuff. Mm. All I want to know is if you're a good person, if you're a good teammate, and your coach says nothing but good things about you. I said, really? I was shocked, eh? Mm, yeah. He says, so don't listen to him. He goes, go back to school. I guarantee you. He said, I guarantee you that a team will sign you as a free agent. He says, there's no way that all 21 teams are going to pass you up, a guy like you. You'll, you'll get picked up for sure. So I said, are you sure about that? He goes, I guarantee it. I said, all right, fine. So so that, that's why I went back to school. But he did he did say, stay out of trouble. Do not get on his bad side. If you don't play, you're screwed. I said, all right, so fine. So I let him abuse me, yell at me, do whatever he wanted to do. And I just kept on playing. So here I was about to attack this guy. And, I, and the words from Tim Burke, the guy's name is Tim Burke, the scout. And I said, and, and his words were ringing in my ear. Do not like, stay out of trouble. Stay out of trouble. Well, hitting your coach with the hockey sticks, you know, definitely, <laughs> definitely trouble. So I decided not to not to attack him. And as soon as he said that, he went on to the next guy. So I went into his office. I was calm now, and I and I demanded to speak with him. And he said he was talking to the media. He didn't have time to talk to me. I, I was going to have to wait. I waited an hour and a half. Jeez. Okay. An hour and a half. And, and in fact, I remember when his, uh, I heard, I was waiting in a hallway that was sort of like blinded by, you know, there's, there's two hallways, mm-hmm. like an L-shaped. And I was waiting in one section of the hallway and his office was on the other section. And I heard his office door opening. So he's trying to leave, right? So I, I peeked around the corner and I said, coach, you ready to talk now? And he looked over at me, he's shocked. He thought I was gone. <laughs> like he was trying to avoid me. Yeah. So. When he did that, I was kind of laughing. I said, okay, well, I'm usually scared of this guy. Well, now he's scared of me. Yeah. So I've got him. So I couldn't wait to get into that office and talk to him. I had so much confidence. So I walk in there, and he, all, he goes, so, so what can I do for you, Graham? I said, well, first of all, um, I want to tell you, you, you better not ever use that word around me again. And I said, don't ever, ever use that word in my presence ever again. And I said, secondly, I don't know what you think you see between me and Bruce, but you're the one that told me to room with him. You made that decision. You told me to hang out with them everywhere. And I did exactly as you said. So for you to suggest that we're trying to form some sort of coalition is, is, is not right. I said, that, that was all, that's all on you. Yeah. I'm only doing what you told me to do. And then he went into, he, he apologized, you know, sort of for, for what he said. But he kind of said he was trying to motivate me and all this stuff. And I said, listen, I go, I go, coach, you're one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. You can find a better way to motivate me. You don't have to say that to me. And then I left. Yeah. But what happened was he said this in front of 20 people who hated his guts. Literally, he had no idea. I think he thought crazy. I don't know why he thought anyone on that team liked him, but every single player on that team hated this man's guts. So, of course, they're going to tell somebody. And so one of them told a dean of student affairs, well, her job 
is to report things to HR. Right. Whether you like it or not, she has to. So she did. Mm-hmm. And that's why he got fired. And I, I never agreed with him being fired. I don't, I don't like me as far as I was concerned. He and I had it out in his office. We settled the situation and I was done. I was good. But then, of course, if a dean finds out, her obligation is to protect the students. Yep. She, it's her job. And, uh, and, oh, yeah, and she happened to hate him, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so guess what? Now you report it to somebody else who hates him because whole everyone, all the faculty hated this guy. Like, yeah. everyone. Trust me. Yeah. Like, there's not one person on, on campus who liked him. So, of course, now you got all your enemies. They got this ammunition. So what happened was he, he was reprimanded, and then it was done. However... One of the people who hated him leaked it to the press oh. and then at the end of the season. So once that happened, because it was all handled internally, the school took care of it, right, internally. Yeah. There was one guy, and it was suspected that we suspected it was the director of admissions because mm-hmm. he and the coach butted heads all the time, obviously, because this guy had, you know, he had RPI had very high standards, mm-hmm. and he wanted you know, to squeeze certain players in. This guy wouldn't, wouldn't budge, yeah. so they butted heads all the time. And, and, and the speculation is that's the guy that, that, that leaked it. And once it got to the press, that was it. The school yeah. had no choice. You know, people say there's a cancel culture now. That's been going on forever, man. This is 1989. Um, it's the same, you know, same thing back then. There's there pressure on campus. Kids were protesting. You know, Black Lives Matter has nothing on these guys, man. They were blocking bridges on campus and stuff. And wow. it, was, it, it got crazy, man. It was nuts. I felt like I was living in 1960s, uh, you know, like Kent, Kent, you know, like some, I, I was waiting for the National Guard to come in. It was absolutely insane. Me and Bruce, me and Bruce isolated ourselves. We didn't hang out with any of our teammates. Well, they didn't hang out with us because mm. they, they weren't certain if the coach was going to come back or not. And I'm sure they were afraid that if they showed support to us and then the coach came back, mm-hmm. he'd destroy them. So they didn't hang with us. Me and Bruce just, we, we, we were together even closer. We became even closer because nobody would talk to us. Yeah. Uh, so we would eat our meals alone and hang out. We were alone for the last, next six weeks of, of the school year. And uh, he was my only support. I was only, his only support during that time. So that's when we became even closer because of that, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, that was the experience. And I think he did get the raw end of the deal. But but to be honest with you, you know, how they say karma's a bitch, right? Yep. When, when you add up all the other things he did, um, like, for example, charging us for our for our letterman jackets that were provided to us by the school the athletic department paid for them what? and he made pay him and so he, you know where'd that cash go i wonder hmm you know? jesus and so wow so we, we so i get to campus as a freshman right this is the, you can't you can't make this stuff up i'm telling you I get to campus as a freshman and uh so in play i played junior hockey right we got sticks we got we, we had one brand we could choose from one curve it was Louisville. So I was happy. I was getting free sticks in junior. I was happy. Yeah. I get to college, and the coach says, okay, I want you to pick three brands. I was like, wow, that's cool. <laughs> so all the co- stick companies show up. They got all their sticks lined up on the wall in the hallway. And I, I go, okay, I'm going to pick. I, I'm like, I felt like a kid in a candy store. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to pick Canadian, Coho, and Sherwood. And I told the guys what curve I wanted and all this stuff, the flex and the shaft and everything else. And So the sticks come in. And as I'm using my sticks, right, I'm realizing, you know, I use, I use only one brand. I'm using, I'm using Coho. I'm not going to use the Canadian or the Sherwood sticks. Anyway, I didn't care. I mean, I was getting all the sticks I needed. I could care less. So one day, I'm walking on the other side of the rink. It's the side of the rink that we never went down on. It was sort of not, it wasn't off limits. We, we never needed to walk on the other side of the rink because we entered, in the, entered on the locker room side and left on the locker room side. But for some reason, I forget why I was over there. 
and there was this there was this big room that was the door was open like it was it was open wide and i looked in the room and i see all these hockey sticks lined up on the wall so i went in the room and i saw my canadian sticks there i saw my sherwood sticks come to find out the coach was selling those sticks to the public <laughs> So imagine this. Like I'm serious. He was. I mean, he he could deny it right now, but I I don't care. I'm telling you, why were my sticks in there? I I wasn't using them. And where'd they go? You know, another time, another time, um, my 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 roommate, he was a goalie, right? So he comes in out of high school, and we all got new equipment, right? So so he gets the coach took his goalie pads, his old ones, took them, and then gave him the new ones, Mm -hmm. right? Well, why do you take the kids' pads? My my buddy's thinking, why do you take my pads? Those are mine. I bought them. Yeah. Well, one day he sees some kid walking out of the rink with his goalie pads. The coach <laughs> sold. <laughs> he sold the guy's pads to some little some some high school kid. Oh my so, god! So he was selling sticks out the back door. So so if the school's buying the sticks for twenty bucks a pop, he's probably selling them for ten bucks a pop, and just making them Jeez. making a filling off of it. So those are the reasons. So that stuff came out because what he did was he. He, um, he kicked one of my teammates off the team, and that guy went to the school and said, hey, this guy's stealing money. He's doing this, this, and this, and this, and this. And he, he went and recited all the stuff I just told you yeah. and said, he's stealing this. So then the school investigated, couldn't prove it. So, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't get rid of him that way. So they, they just got – so once this thing happened with me, it was like, aha, mm-hmm. gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Can't get you on the other stuff, but we got you on this one. So that's what happened. That's why if, if he wasn't such a jerk – he probably wouldn't have gotten fired for, for what he what he said. Probably wouldn't have happened. But he was he was just on running rampant on campus, doing whatever the hell he wanted. And and, and just keep in mind, I, I, like I've I've made up with this guy mm-hmm. recently. Yeah. We're, we're fine now. But but I'm just telling you the truth. And that this mm-hmm. is the toxic environment that was created there. And it's a reason why I, I hated I hated um, that school at the time. Mm-hmm. And it, you, you, I'm going to tell you something interesting that you didn't you probably never even realized. But you know I played in Troy for two years for the Islanders to yep. see the Islanders. Well, the funny thing is, um, I don't know, when I, whenever I went into that rink, I always went in the back door. Mm. I never went through the front door. And the reason is the facade of that building, just looking at it, gives me anxiety attacks to this wow. day. Wow. And thankfully, they've changed the whole facade. It's all glass. It doesn't look anything, anything like it did back in the day. But I'm telling you, when I drive up People's Avenue and I'd, I'd see that rink, I swear to God, I started sweating and shaking. Like, it's freaky. And, yeah. and I, I, I didn't realize it until years later that I said, what, what, and I realized, yeah, I always used to drive past uh, Burdett Avenue yeah. and then take the next right and go down the back. I, I never went down Burdett Avenue because I didn't want to go up People's because that's the hill that takes you right up to the rink and the rink's at the very top of the hill. Yeah. And I, did, I just never wanted to see that rink because I remember walking up um, – walking up people's avenue from class and you could see the rink from like a mile away right mm-hmm. and i remember the anxiety and the fear of just looking at that building I, to me it was like a it, it resembled the the house on uh in that movie cycle <laughs> but that's what that's what i try see in my mind when i look at that rink i see the cycle house i see the little old lady in the window that little old lady yeah. is is a coach <laughs> and that's what I see in my mind and i i hate that building i hate that building with a passion and it's because of what we went through as, as kids none of my teammates not one single guy who played during that era even before me will go back to that school wow i'm not even kidding the guys that won the national championship will not go back there that Jeez. tells you something. 
So any anyone after after that coach yeah. has no visiting school. The alumni come back, they love it. And and the, the current coach is always trying asking us, why won't you guys come back? Why can't we get anybody from, from 19, 1989 and before? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you why, because we hate that place. <laughs> and Man. none of us are gonna go there. Well, you know? yeah. Um, well, and, and the, that's the thing, like, you know, I think how I knew, I knew about the story, I think it, be, you know, obviously back then there's no internet, so I'm not reading about this in Newsday or the Daily News or anything like that, but I did read the article when you guys uh, sort of mended the fences and the article, I know I read it kind of detailed what happened. And like I said, I mean, I, I know you, Graham, I know you, I, 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 you know, I don't know you as well as other people do, but I know what kind of guy you are. And like I said, the way you handled it, it really was like, yeah, I'm not surprised at all because you handled it. Like I'm, I'm old school. I'm an old school guy. I, I know you're a little bit older than me. I think belated happy birthday, by the way, but um, yeah, thank you. we're, we're basically same generation. And, and even though we, we came from different places and stuff, like I, I think you're an old school guy too. And the way that you handled it, I think you handled it in an old school man to man way. And like you said, you would have been fine the way it was the way you, you know, you, you had your say, but Obviously, this guy and the stuff that you're saying, um, I'm sure it could always all be documented, whatever. But the stuff you're saying, this guy is just a guy who burned every bridge, apparently, that he ever crossed. And, uh, you know, you live your life that way, no matter what you are, whether you're a hockey coach or you're a doctor or you're a garbage man or a librarian. If you burn every bridge, eventually it's going to come back to haunt you. You're only going to be on that run for so long. And eventually it's going to come back and it's going to bite you in the ass. So, um, but you know, like I said, it really was the way that you handled it. That really was like, you know, yeah, that's the guy that I know for sure. I just, I think you handled it as, as good as, I mean, it was probably perfect in my eyes. I would like to think I would have handled it the same way. Yeah. I mean, and and honestly, I I really didn't want to see him get fired or or I didn't want to see him, you know, of course they said he resigned, but Mm. I didn't want to see that. I didn't think he deserved to have his life upended because something like that. Now, even though I'll tell you, like, because I, I recently ran into him, man. Like, like I, I, um, I had, the, I've had this love-hate relationship with him for ever since then. Mm-hmm. And, um, so after he got, he got let go, I remember him asking me to write a letter of recommendation for him for another co- college job, and and I <laughs> did it because not because, um, not because of what he said to me, but I just didn't think that he's a good person to have around young men because okay. and your mind is just starting to form, right? Yeah. And, the damage he can do to people, like, like, I, like, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll say this, I'll, I'll tell you, because I've gone through years of counseling. Like, there is a lot of times, man, when I, I, I was going to end my life because I hated life so much, and I'm sure of it that some mates went the same stuff. Like, the depression was, it was real, man. I got, mm-hmm. like, there's so many times, dude. I, I was thinking, you know, what, why am I even here? And so, like, I, I, I'm not blaming him because I, I let myself go there. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, but you know I, I just didn't think he was it was healthy for him to be around kids because you're you're just starting to form your your who you are at 19 20 years old you're trying to figure out who you are and then you got this guy like just crapping on you telling you telling you your your family's horrible your your parents did a terrible job raising you all this crap and like what are you talking about dude you know and mm-hmm. and then just just like the, the the dishonesty and stealing from you and all that stuff it's just. It's really, it's really, and so I, but I, I, I did write letters. I wrote two, one, one to um, University of Denver or Denver University and one for Northeastern. And he, and he didn't, he didn't get either job, but then he came to me wanting a letter for a high school team. Oh, that's when I said, you know, coach, listen, I don't feel comfortable doing that. I, I can't, uh, I can't do that. 
Because, yeah. you know, it's bad enough if he's going to get a hold of 18 to 20-year-olds, but there's no way in hell he's going to let him get a hold of 16-year-olds. Yeah. So I said I, I refused to do it, and, and that was it. But then uh, recently um, I ran into him. I ran into him um, at, a, at a rink, and I, and I remember like a couple years ago I saw him at a rink, and I got full of anxiety. I, I left the rink before he saw me. I called him. I called my buddy John Haley, the goalie, and I just just for support because I was, I was I couldn't breathe, man. I was like, oh my god! It was, it was like you see your 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 abuser. It's freaking weird, man. I, I am. I'm a big dude, and I yeah. can't believe I was this guy. So then finally, I went in. I went in to see him, and he and he he asked for my phone number. I said no. I don't want to give you my phone number. And then um, that was it. So then finally, I saw him again uh, last week. Actually, last week. And um, a buddy of mine was there, and he knows about everything. Ken Hodge, Kenny Hodge Jr. Okay, yeah. And he goes, "You want me to go check the room and make sure, like, like, like sort of sweep the room for you?" He goes, "No, Kenny, I'll go in there. I'm not afraid of this guy." So I went in there. He didn't say anything. He didn't acknowledge me, and I know he saw me. So Kenny sat between me and me and coach. And um, so then Kenny left after the first period to go talk to the referees because he, he's like the, he's like the um, Director of player personnel for the league, right? Okay. This league, and I've got a billet kid living with me, and I was, I was at the game to watch him play. So Odessa saw me, and he goes, "Wow, is that who I think it is?" And I looked over, I said, "Hey, Mike, how you doing?" It's the first time I ever called him Mike. Mm-hmm. It felt, I felt empowered, man. It felt good to say that, like, yeah. "Hey, Mike, how you doing?" And I was playing with my phone. I was, I was just pretending I was playing with my phone. He goes, um, "Any chance that you and I could could have a, a you know a little conversation?" So I looked around the room. There's a few people in there. I said, "You know what, Mike? Nah, I don't want to talk right now." was okay not a good time perhaps later and then finally when he said that i said you know what mike yeah i want to talk to you mm-hmm. and i said what do, what do you want to talk about he says well you know one thing in my that's been bothering me in my entire life um is that incident between you and me he goes that's one thing i deeply regret and i'm truly sorry for what i said i've never seen this guy so remorseful before so right when he started saying that it kind of softened my heart a little bit i was i was going to lay into him you know but then all of a sudden i see how humble he was and he asked me to forgive him. I said, you know what, Mike, I forgave you for that a long time ago. I've got no problem with you on, as far as the racial thing's concerned. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you understand that. So the only reason that I'm angry with you is, and, I, and Kenny Hodge had come back in the room at the time, and I, and I pointed to Kenny. I said, see that guy right there? He had an, an incredible four years of Boston College. He got to enjoy the most, the, the most fun years of his life. So what should have been my most my, the, the most fun years of my life were, the, were, were the, the worst years of my life. I should have enjoyed my college hockey experience. I said, I'm jealous of anybody that had a great college hockey experience because neither me nor my teammates enjoyed it there. I said, you created such a toxic environment that we couldn't enjoy ourselves. We, we, we couldn't enjoy the moment. And I feel that that was stolen from me. And I can, I'll never get that back. And then all of a sudden, he apologized for that too. And I said, you know what, Mike? I said, I accept your apology. I'm glad you said that. And um, yeah, you can have my number. And I said, yes, I'd like to keep in touch with you. And I said, one of the reasons I want to keep in touch with you is because the one person that that gave us a glimmer of hope and happiness at that school was your wife, Mary. Because so what she would do is um, she would Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday because of her. I told him that. I said she would come in and she'd cook like we had five apartments. She'd come in and cook all of our turkeys for us make sure we all had an awesome Thanksgiving dinner every year. Mm-hmm. I said that that kindness from your wife, like that one day was the happiest day of the year for me at RPI. I had four happy days at that school and that was wow. it because of your wife. I said, it's because of Mary Odessa. 
I said, I would love to keep in touch with her because she was like the mother away from home. You know, I, I, I just wish she was around more, more than just the one day. Yeah. But honest to God, I had four happy days at that school where I had no worries, nothing, nothing, you know, just a happy day watching football. And it was because of her. She made that day special. And um, that's why to this day, like Christmas is not my favorite holiday. It's Thanksgiving. Yeah. Because isn't that crazy? Christmas used to be my favorite yeah. holiday, but it became my my least favorite because of because Christmas at RPI sucked. It was awful. It was the worst time of year. And um, I mean, I, I've had I had I had a, a mental block throughout my entire career because of the Christmas experience at RPI. It was it was six weeks of literal hell. Yeah. That that's when I was my most depressed, and that's when I had the most evil thoughts. And throughout my career, if you look at my hockey career as a pro. Um, I always started out really, really hot every year, okay? And then right around Christmas or a week before Christmas, all of a sudden, like I'd get called up, and then I'd be up there for a couple weeks, and then right before Christmas, I'd start playing bad, and i get sent down. And then I, then and that would last, and then all of a sudden, I'm in the minors. I'm a healthy scratch. Believe it or not, I just get sent down from the show, and I'm, now I'm a healthy scratch um, half the games until right around the middle of January, and all of a sudden, Graham Townsend starts playing good again, and I get called up in February. It was the same thing every year for 10 years. Wow. And I didn't – I used to think it was the coaches being jerks and, you know, ah, the coach is an asshole. He doesn't know what he's doing. But I started looking back and thinking – I started seeing a pattern. So I, when I started going to counseling, I, I, I saw a pattern. And then, you know, through counseling and lots of talking and meditation and all this crazy, you know, out-of-this-world stuff that I never thought was any, any good, I realized that the connection was it started at RPI and, yeah. and it started at Christmas. Because before before then, I didn't have slumps like that in junior hockey. I didn't have slumps in minor hockey. I played consistently the whole year. That's why I, I, I was able to advance every year because I was consistent. And all of a sudden, I get to RPI and I'm no longer consistent. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having, I always started out really, really good at RPI. And then at Christmas, I sucked and I finished the year strong. Every year. Every freaking year. And that went on. So for, so for 14 years of my life, that was a pattern. And it's because just being there, yeah. being in that ugly environment, you know. So um, it's amazing what – and, I, and I, I told him all this. I said, you know, this is you – know, I, I suffered for, for 10, you know, for 10 years. And, and then I, I, I've had to go to counseling because of this. You know, it's cost me a ton of money, which has been worth it. But, you know, I said, this is because of you. And when he apologized, I, I, I believe he was he's sorry for it. And so I, I forgave him, and and I, I literally felt this 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 weight fall off my shoulders when when I when I forgave him because I've been so full of anger and hatred for this guy for so many years, and it and it really isn't a healthy way to live. Mm-hmm. And uh, so yeah, once once that came off my shoulders, man, I felt so much better, and I've felt really really good ever since then. It's been a week, and I can breathe and don't feel the tension anymore in my in my in my chest, in my back, my head. It just feel really good, you know. So. Anyone out there who has uh, who has someone to forgive, man, you, you, I, I recommend you do it. Well, you know, a, the theme of my show, obviously, I have guys on that fight and are enforcers, and a lot of times, you know, adjectives, you know, you know, just words that are used like warriors and things like that, and that's the way you played on the ice, but off the ice, you obviously, you know, the stuff that you've been through, you're definitely a warrior because, uh, you know, and I think, you know, in the last 10, 20 years, mental illness and, and trying to help people with mental illness um, 
has really come to the forefront and it's become more accepted. There's really no, I guess there is still maybe a stigma uh, from some people, but I think generally it's accepted because I think, I, I mean, I would venture to say most people have some form of it, whether it's mild or if it's severe. And I mean, just the stuff that you said when you, when you were talking about your darkest days, it just kind of gave me chills. And I, I mean, obviously I wasn't expecting that. And that was, you know, I was like, holy shit. But, uh, you know, the stuff you've overcome, I mean, you know, as far as you, your, you being a warrior and your warrior mentality and your warrior spirit, the stuff you've done on the ice really pales in comparison to even this, this story and, and your, your journey through college and even up until, like you say, a week ago. I mean, uh, you know, I have some experience in, in confronting someone that, you know, tried to do some real serious damage to me. And I understand how it is when you, you kind of, uh, when you confront that person, how liberating it is. So I can definitely uh, relate to you in that respect. But, um, you know, definitely you, you really do have the warrior spirit and it's not just uh, on the ice, it's definitely off the ice. And, and I'm really happy to hear that. So uh, we're going to move away from RPI now. And uh, okay. thank you. Yeah, of course. So how did you end up uh, signing with the Bruins? Um, and were they, uh, how many other teams were interested? How'd you end up in, in uh, with the Bruins organization? Well, this is, gonna, this is a funny one. Um, so my season ends my senior year. And actually I got, we, we had a two game series against Harvard and I got kicked out of the second game. Um, so I got suspended for the, sorry, I got kicked out of the first game. And I got suspended for the second game. So so um, the only way I was going to be able to play is if we won the second game and then it would go into what they call a mini game. Mm-hmm. So I could, cause which is considered a whole separate game. So I was, I was getting ready to dress for that, but we ended up losing. So, so I went back, went back to school. That's when all this crap um, uh, broke out mm-hmm. with the coach. Um, and it was an internal thing on campus. It took care of it on campus. But um, what happened was uh, my agent said, listen, the, the, um, uh, Mike Milbury is going to be the head coach of the Boston Bruins next year. He's also going to be the, the assistant general manager. He's coaching. He's finishing up his finishing up the season in, in Maine, in Portland, with the Mariners. So he says it'd be a good idea for you to play for him. And if he likes you, um, it's, there's a good chance he might want to sign you when he's when he takes over the role as assistant GM in Boston. And my agent happened to be his agent. Okay. So I went up there after two weeks. I hadn't played in two weeks, and I remember feeling like really. I felt out of shape. I felt that my timing was off and all this stuff. So, um, so Mike had a meeting with me. He said, listen, we got it. We have eight games left in order for us to make the playoffs. We have to win all eight games. If we lose or tie, okay. Um, whatever we're eliminated. So, so you'll play the remaining games when, if, and when that happens. So, um, so they, they ended up uh, winning the first two and then they lost the third game. So now I'm going to start playing. And, um, so, the first game's like a Wednesday night or something like that. We're playing uh, Binghamton. And I'll never forget the day before, we're doing battle drills. And um, there's the tough guy on the team, a guy named Mitch. And uh, he's he's kicking the crap out of me, right, in, in, these, in these battle drills. And um, But for me, it was no – I thought nothing, nothing of it because in college, we, we ran the crap out of each other. I didn't know that in the pros, you weren't supposed to run your teammates, right? So, I, <laughs> like, in college, you did. Yeah. We had 30 guys. The coach didn't care if guys got hurt because he had 30 players. You only need 20. So we, we just, we literally, you'd run a guy through the boards in college. It didn't matter. Even Joe Juno, you'd kill him if you had to. Mm-hmm. He's our best player. The coach did not protect anybody. Yeah. So as a pro, I thought, that, you know, I figured this was just normal. So we, we go to lunch. Uh, me and my roommate, the kid, this kid was from, from Cornell. He was trying out too. Uh, he was a senior from, uh, from Cornell. And um, we had lunch together, he and I. He was, he was my roommate. 
And he goes, hey, Mitch was all over you today. And I go, yeah, he was, must hit me pretty hard, I noticed. He goes, you know, every time he knocked you on your ass, he came to the back of the line and was calling you a pussy and stuff, eh? And I was like, what? Now, normally, if, if this was, if we were back at RPI, and if, if I heard something like that, I'd go looking for Mitch, and then me and Mitch would have a conversation, but, you know, not, not, with, our, not with words. Right. I would, I would, I would, I would have gone after him. I would have looked all over campus to find this guy. But I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do? Go to this guy's house, you know, and you know, I'm going to get arrested. Like, what am I going to do? I, I was stuck. So I called my mentor. I was furious. So Paul said, listen, man, there's only one thing you can do. You got to go beat him up in the locker room tomorrow. I go, but Paul, it's a game day. He goes, it doesn't matter. If this guy, you let this go now, this guy will pick on you the rest of your career. So I went to the locker room, and I'm waiting for this guy. I got there early. He comes in. I, I get up. I grab, and then keep in mind, I've only been there for like four days, maybe a week. I don't even know these guys. Mm-hmm. I grabbed him. I put his up by the throat. And I put him up against the wall, and I said, if you ever laugh at me again, I'm going to effing kill you. And he said, uh, he said, you're, he was like, you're crazy. Could he, I was, I was poking him pretty good. So he said, you're crazy. So there's this bulletin board right next to his head. And I punched it as hard as I could. And I smashed it. And there was this plywood wall behind it. And I cracked the plywood wall. I said, that's going to be your face. And I left him alone. He goes, you're not, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. He sat down. Well, that plywood wall, unbeknownst to me, happened to be Mike Milbury's office wall. And I guess I knocked some photos off the wall or something. And he comes in the, in the locker room. He's furious. He's like, who the hell knocked my, who the hell punched my wall? And, and so no one ratted me out. I was going to, I was about to say something, right? Yeah. And I went up to it. And, I, and then John Blum, that was one of the, he was not nothing. It was nobody, Bones. No, I mean, it was nobody, uh, 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 Mike, don't worry about it. So Mike looks around the room. And I, I decided not to say anything. And he left. Well, I guess someone, someone might have told, must have told him that it was me. Yeah. And Milbury thought, oh, wow, this kid's crazy. I'm, I'm signing this guy. So <laughs> one of the reasons I got signed. Like, I, I got a couple goals and I had a couple fights, but because I, I did that and, and the reasons why, Mike thought I was nuts and loved it. And so I signed with the Bruins. I swear to God, that's how it happened. It wasn't because I was a great player or anything like that. It was because he thought I was crazy and uh, he liked it. So, you know, so I, I signed with the Bruins because of that. And then, of course, you know, now they expect me to do that all the time. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second. Yeah. I was just pissed off because the guy was making fun of me. <laughs> you know, like, you want me to do that all the time now? <laughs> and, so, and then, of course, for, for fight fans like myself and everything, the Mitch you're talking about is Mitch Malloy. Uh, yes. And people are familiar with him. Um, I got to ask you about two guys you played with down in Maine. And by the way, for, for people uh, who may not have Hockey DB in front of them, uh, you played five games after RPI with Maine. Five games, three points in five games. Very impressive. 11 penalty minutes. Uh, you played with two guys. One guy um, that I want to ask you about is sort of like a minor minor league legend, uh, very renowned, and it might be half because he was very tough, and also I think the name recognition has something to do with it, and that's Bruce Shoebottom. What were your impressions of Shoe? Man, Shoe was a scary dude. Now, Shoe, Shoe, uh, Shoe for whatever reason, took a liking to me. Mm-hmm. So, like, he was my roommate, too, on the road. And he took a liking to me, and um, you know, he he taught me how to fight, man. He showed me a lot of you know, he, in between him and Nick Fatio. Nick Fatio was my first instructor, and uh, funny story about Nick, I'll tell you about later. But um, but yeah, Shu, uh, I I, I Shu was a scary dude, man. And at the time, though, when I was there, he was actually up in Boston, and so he was there for the playoff run. I didn't meet Shu until the next year. Okay, I trained with him, and he had a beard and everything. Mm-hmm. Oh man, he was an intimidating dude, man. He was tough as nails and. Mm-hmm would fight anybody. I mean, he was, he was just a psycho, but my first fight 
Like I had no idea what I was doing. Eh? So I, I'm, we're playing in Sherbrooke. Yep. And uh, so I'm, you know, I'm, I got the puck in my zone. I make an outlet pass, and all of a sudden, this big dude mm-hmm. stand looking at me, shaking his hand. So I'm like, oh, I guess he wants to fight. So I fight the guy, beats the snot out of me. I mean, I mean, not not like I'm, I didn't get cut or nothing, but yeah. I, I lost the fight. I, mm-hmm. I call it beat the snot because I lost it. It was decisive. Yeah. So I get to the penalty box, and you know, it's this, it's this guy named Serge Robert. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. I get to the penalty box and, and I'm kind of dazed and confused because he, you know, he hit me in the head a couple times and I'm sitting there going, "What the hell just happened?" So I look over at the guy, right, and I see his face glistening, and I realize he's got Vaseline all over his face. <laughs> yeah. And I look at his jersey and I see this discoloration on the shoulders. It's freaking Vaseline, and because I couldn't understand why I couldn't grab the guy. Yeah, one kept slipping off his jersey. <laughs> I'm like, I go, so that's how you do it. Okay, so guess what Townsend starts doing. I'm gonna I'm gonna lube myself up before every game. I didn't know you I didn't know you could do that. Mm-hmm. You know, but it works. So so yeah. So that's what I started doing. And, and then it got, then the, my second opportunity to fight was uh Kerry Clark. He wants to go, and I'm I'm gonna fight him. And the referee's broken up. The ref goes to me, "Hey kid, you're not ready for him yet. You gotta you know, work your way up. Work your way up." I said, "Oh okay." So, so, so I, I'm learning all these all all the, all the rules in hockey. Like you, know, you got to work your way up to Kerry Clark and all this. I'm like, okay, fine. So. So I worked my way up to him eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're <laughs> going to talk about that. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, listen, trial yeah. by fire, a young kid fresh out of college. For me personally, Sergio Burge is on my um, Mount Rushmore of minor league legends. I mean, that guy is unbelievable. And uh, I, I had Mike McWilliam on the show, and he was telling me about a fight he had with Serge and how he had to have basically he had to have his jersey cut off because Serge had tied him up in knots. And, uh, you know, search hits hard, but he also is, he's a technician. Like it's his craft. And he just basically yeah. said, he goes, I felt like I was in a straitjacket by the time the fight was over because I can't get my arms loose. He's got me tied, you know, my Jersey's tied up. I had to cut it off of me. So, uh, you, you, you picked on a tough guy on your first fight there. That's for sure. Well, when I, when I saw that, I was definitely going to ask you about that. So, well, he, he picked me. I didn't pick him. I didn't know who he was. I, I didn't know anybody. Yeah. Like I, Call the American League. I knew I didn't have a clue. So I see this guy who wants to fight. I, well, there's my first fight. The, the thing is, though, I, I I failed to follow. Well, actually, actually, I learned I learned the first rule of fighting later on with, with Nick Fatio. So like, so so um, I, I what I, I did everything wrong in that first fight, everything. And so first of all, I didn't do my homework on anybody. I didn't look at the stat sheet or nothing. I didn't know anybody. I, if I looked at the stat sheet, I would have figured out who he was. Yeah. And then uh, the, what Nick Fatu always taught me was, you know, every fight is your fight. If you don't want to fight, you don't do it. Now, here's, here's one of the toughest guys I've ever seen in my life. He's telling me, don't fight. Don't, don't listen to your coaches, your teammates, the fans. If you, want, if you don't want to fight, you only fight a guy when you're, when you're ready. Don't fight a guy at the end of a shift. So what, what did I do? I'm at the end of my freaking shift, and I picked the toughest guy in the league. And I didn't know he was the toughest guy in the league because I didn't, I, I didn't do my homework. Nick always said, do your homework, all right? Mm-hmm. Look at the statues, figure out who the toughest guys are, try to find out what their strengths and weaknesses are. And I'm like, I didn't do any of that. Yeah. Didn't do any research, nothing. I just fight the toughest guy in the league and I got exactly what I deserved. A shit kicking. <laughs> <laughs> so so lesson lesson number one. <laughs> now uh, another guy, well, I, I shouldn't say another teammate because she wasn't a teammate until the next year, but uh I believe he did play with Phil DiGetano, and the reason why I bring him up is he has Long Island ties here. I don't know how familiar you are with the old RHI. 
um, the roller hockey. And we had a team here on Long Island for one year, the Long Island Jaws. And Phil was the coach and the GM. And, and he assembled a real scary group of guys here for the roller hockey team. And I remember meeting him. And I, I remember him from the American League. And he's got the big hands. Like he squeezed my hand and everything. And I know he wasn't afraid to mix it up either. So do you remember playing with Phil? Yeah, I didn't play with Phil. He might have been on that team that year, the 80, 88, 89 season. Yeah. But there's a lot of guys on that that were gone by the time okay. I got there I for okay. the last games of the year. So, yeah, he wasn't there at the time. Okay. So after after that five-game trial with uh, with Maine, so then you ended up uh, – Mike ended up signing you? Yeah, we, I signed about a month later. Actually, I think I signed in May. So it was uh, – was it? Two months later. That was that was the end of March, beginning of April. So yeah, but yeah, it gets about a month, month and a half later. I signed with the Bruins. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and then got ready for my first training camp. It's uh, it's good to you know. I'm not a fan of Mike. I mean, obviously, as as an Islander fan, a lot of Islander fans are not fans of him. The what he did to the franchise here. Uh, but I'm not. I'm also not uh, short sighted enough to think that the guy is a, a completely bad guy and everything. And I I know personally some guys that he was very beneficial for their career. So. Uh, and you, you may be one of those guys, obviously he gave you an opportunity. So, uh, would you say Mike Milbury was good for your career? Absolutely. I got to also say, I mean, it might not be popular to say this in, in New York, but, but he's, he's one of the best coaches I ever had, honestly. And what I liked about Mike was, um, he was honest with you. Okay. Like that. I, I respect honesty. So if you, if you suck, you suck. Like he has no problem telling you that if you did, you did a good job, he'll tell you that too. Like, I really respect that. Mm-hmm. And, and not only, he won't tell you suck just because, you know, just to pick on you. He, he'll tell you suck for a reason. He'll, he'll be honest with you. And, and whatever it is you got to work on, he'll tell you. And that's all, that's all, I, that's all I ask for in a coach. He's a guy that, that's going to be honest with me and, and, uh, and, and give me an opportunity if I deserve it. And I deserved it. And, you know, because at first when I was in Maine, I'm, they, they were trying to send me down to the East Coast because I had a really bad training camp. And, and I stuck it out. I didn't, I didn't quit. And even though they weren't playing me and they're they skating me every day, twice a day sometimes, I stuck it out. And the, the, the next guy that, that, that really gave me a chance was Rick Bonus. I mean, Rick yeah. Bonus, if it wasn't for him, I never would have made it. He eventually, even though he was told by his, his, his boss, Harry Sinden, not to play me, to get me to quit because they, they wanted to convince me to, to, to go to the East Coast League or, or the I. Yeah. And so, 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 Rick, so Rick every day was just, was just punishing the crap out of me. I remember one day we had a, we had a power play practice for two hours. It's all we did power play five one three, the whole two hours. It's crazy, and and I was the only penalty killer for two hours. <laughs> so so what I did was, but see what happened was I was in phenomenal shape. I could literally skate all day, and I never got tired. Eh? Like I'm serious, never got tired. Mm-hmm. So so what I did is I kind of like I was being a little bit of a jerk. I I'd, I'd, I'd like steal the puck or something, break up the power play, and I'd skate the other end of the rink and put the puck in the empty net and like do a big celebration. You know, I was doing stuff like that. I was really pissing the guys off. And so after practice, we, we did a little bit of a bag skate. And in between reps, we're kind of skating around, kind of catching our breath. And Bob Beers comes up to me and says, hey, man, how can you have such a great attitude when you know they're screwing you? And I go, because the whole team knew they were trying to get me to quit. Everyone knew. I said, Beersy, these morons are paying me to skate. I go, are you kidding me? This is the best job ever. I can skate all freaking day. I used to skate for free. Now they're paying me. You know, so I don't, I'm not complaining. So yeah. finally, Rick says, you know what? I'm going to stop screwing you. And he put me in the lineup. And I think I played like a 12-game stint and had about six or seven goals or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when I got called up. And so, and then Milbury was, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, he was a fan of mine. And, 
he he was good to me. He treated me good, man. I, I can't I can't say a negative thing about about uh, about Mike Milbury at all. He was one of the honestly one of the best coaches I had. One of the smartest coaches. Um, knew how to prepare his team to compete every night. Um, you know, I don't know. I know nothing about what happened with the Islanders, but yeah. I'll tell you what, in Boston, he was awesome. I, I can't believe he left. What everything that you're saying about Mike, and it's funny because when the Islanders hired him, I was a fan. Like I, everything you're saying is what I what I thought they were getting. Like this this tough guy, brash guy, but honest guy. And and for the most part, I, I think he was a completely different guy here with the Islanders. And like you said, you weren't here. But everything you're saying, I believe wholeheartedly because when they got him, I I really thought he was exactly the type of personality this team needed. I, I was like, this is going to be the guy. And it did, obviously it didn't work out that way. But I, I believe, not that I had no reason to believe you anyway, but everything you're saying, I believe 100% because I readily admit when they brought him here, I really thought this was going to be the turning point for this organization. And obviously it wasn't. They went further and further plummeted into the abyss uh but i absolutely 100 percent believe everything you're saying because i i love before he came here i loved the guy and um you know it's unfortunate the way things uh, the way things turned out but like i said when, when i hear guys like you uh and other players where he gave like i i think he gave steve webb a really big opportunity here and, and webby ran with it you know and there yeah. were there were players that he seemed to genuinely like and give them a chance and you know as much as i dislike the guy uh, I'm happy when you know people like you and and people like Webb. I mean, hey, he was the guy that picked up Eric Cairns off waivers from the Rangers, and Cairns came here and he was he's arguably one of the toughest players. Well, I don't think it's arguable, but he's one of the toughest players ever in the organization. He really developed as a player here. So yeah. you know, without Mike, maybe he you know Cairns he doesn't get picked up here. So as much as I really don't care for the guy, I'd be I'd be a fool to say that he didn't do some good things. And I I always enjoy hearing you know from someone like yourself who did get an opportunity because of him and i'm happy that he gave you that opportunity for sure yeah i, I think i think in mike's defense though um you know coming from the bruins organization like mike, mike is a bruin through and through like yeah. right to the marrow okay mm-hmm. and 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 what what the thing with boston is i i you know how they say you can take them uh what, what is the word now you can take you can take someone out of the bruins organization but that person, I don't believe, is going to be able to recreate the the culture in another place. Mm-hmm. I think it's unique to Boston. This is crazy, but I think it's unique to Boston. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Like in the Bruins organization, I know he was criticized for doing certain things with certain players, trading certain guys. But you have to understand the Bruins organization is like it's you're truly like and the Islanders are obviously a great with 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 um, Al Arbor mm-hmm. and um, and um, Bill Torrey, right? They created a, a culture there too. But I think when those guys left, that 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 culture kind of left with them. Yeah. Like I think it's important that when when you when you have a culture like that, that you have to con- continue the line. So like perhaps they should have had a Butch Goring run the team or something like that after those guys. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in Boston, if you notice what Boston does, what do they do? They 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 uh. So Harry Sinden's a general manager, and then he brings Mike Milbury in as the assistant GM. And I don't know why he left. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. But maybe maybe the the he expected the GM's job and didn't get it or whatever. But but then after Milbury, um, you know, you, you bring in someone like uh, like like the Don Sweeney's and Cam Neely's. They understand the Bruins mentality. So the Bruins mentality is it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're Ray Bork, Cam Neely or Graham Townsend. OK, mm-hmm. you're all the same. I'm, I swear to God that we're all the same. We, we if you weren't performing, didn't matter who you were. You're going to the minors like you, you have to perform. 
you now there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of things that have happened happened recently that I can't tell you about, but mm-hmm. that, that that shows me they're still consistent with that mentality. Mm-hmm. You have you're a Bruin first, yeah, first and foremost, and that's it. Doesn't matter. You're not a star. You're just a freaking guy wearing a hat. You have a spoke to be on your jersey. You're part of that. You're part of. The- there that's what the older guys taught pass that down to me and i don't think that you can go to another organization and just recreate what the, what took 100 years to create you know what i mean yep yeah and the work that started back in 19 was it 17 or 24 whatever it is yeah so you just can't recreate that uh, overnight it took 100 years to get there in boston you know what i mean and and so so in his defense i i don't think he had a chance to do that there because it's just, it just, it takes too long. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Mike, Mike Milby, I mean, he, I've, I've talked to him recently. He said, that, you know, I, I told him, I said, you know, we were one of the best coaches I ever had. I'm surprised you're not coaching. He goes, Graham, the only team I'd ever coach is the Bruins. And I can yeah. totally get, I totally get it. Mm-hmm. Cause he, because even to this day, Boston is still, the Bruins are still what they were in terms of character and, and culture, same as they were 50 years ago. You know? Yep. yep. So I get it. I get it. Now this season, uh, this upcoming season, your first year pro, uh, as I was going through your fights, I believe this is the season that you had the most fights that you ever had in a particular season. Uh, was that something that you, you consciously did to sort of establish yourself and, uh, you know, defend your teammates and make room, but also spark the team and just kind of get the name out there. Was it the kind of thing where you knew you were going to have to play physical to eventually make the jump to Boston? Not really. Just happened because guys were coming after me, mm-hmm. you know. Like, like, um, you know, like most of the times it was. I, I, I only, I, I can only think of maybe a couple of fights that I initiated, and because mm-hmm. I was pissed off or whatever. But, but for the most part, guys were coming after me. Yeah. And um, and actually, I was doing pretty good, so I, I was actually enjoying it. Yeah. I was, I was actually liking it. And um, and then what happened? So what happened was, I mean, I. I I remember fighting Dean Ewan. I, mean, I just take a bit off more than I could chew in that fight. But um, <laughs> but I, 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 I me and Dean looked at each other, went at went at it. I, I fought a lot of guys from his team that year. Yep. And it was only because uh, guys were coming after me, really. Mm-hmm. And um, you had no choice. You had to fight. You know. So that's yeah. why I did. And um, it was I, I didn't understand the dynamics of of the tough guy role and I'm like I didn't even know they wanted me to be a tough guy. I just I just felt you fight because it was part of the game. Mm-hmm. I wasn't wasn't like I was. Uh, because in Maine, no one, no one need to need to be babysat in Maine. You didn't have to like stick up for anybody. Everyone, everybody on that team, literally everybody, took care of themselves. Like everybody could take care of themselves on that team. Right. I've never been on a team before that where every single guy could literally, like, with the exception of maybe Stevie Tajura who, who didn't fight. Yeah, guys stuck up for him, but there's really nobody else you had to quote unquote stick up for. Right, because every no, not one guy on that team had a problem dropping the gloves. Not one. <laughs> so uh, we were pretty tough. Yeah. Now, also, you know, you had alluded to fighting Dean and another team that was very tough, and and it's a rivalry with the New England. Uh, New England rivalries are obviously American League always has the the New England teams. So you mentioned uh, Dean Ewan's team, which was Springfield, and uh, I have you fighting four guys on Springfield that year. You fought Kerry Clark, who you mentioned already. I have you fighting him twice. Uh, you fought mm-hmm. Dino, and I have you fighting Dale Kushner. Uh, do you yeah. remember any of those fights? Any of the details of those fights? Yeah, well, the one against Dino was more of a um, me getting tagged several times at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, holy shit, dude! Because I think he, at that time he was the biggest guy that I'd fought. Like even Kerry Clark, he was bigger than Clarky. Yeah, 
And I remember thinking, oh, my God. So, like, what I had to do is uh, I didn't want to get embarrassed, so I had to seatbelt Dino. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I put the arms around him, put him, up, put him up against the glass. As hard, I put all 220 pounds into him, and he just kept, kept, kept on pounding on my head. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was thankful the referees got in there. Like, Dino, Dino's freaking tough as shit, man. I mean, yeah. honestly, I, like I, I, I didn't know what I was doing, and he was a much better fighter than me. So, not, so that's why it went the way it went. And then the, the most memorable one was um, – was uh, was was Dale Kushner because um that was one where I was just pissed mm-hmm. and what happened was we were, it was on one shift he must have ran me at least four times on this one shift that like, sounds really like him hard. so so then the one the one hit that pissed me off I got, again I don't mind being hit yeah like I don't I'll hit you you hit me I don't care about that but this one particular hit I was four check and I'm in I'm in I'm in the corner I'm on the right side my right side I'm in the corner. And uh, so the puck gets moved out of the zone. I think they must have hit the centerman. And I turn around, and all of a sudden, I get laid out. Like, And I realize it's Dale. He's playing left wing. That means he skated from the top of the circle 40 feet just to hit me. Okay, this is personal. Yeah. So I, I, had a, I grabbed a stick, and he was dragging me. And I, I stood up and dropped the gloves right away. And that's when, like, um, I went bananas. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you got the video. I got I got the video. It's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I, I got it. I got it. See where his helmet went flying up in the air? Mm-hmm. I was like, holy shit, I knocked this guy's helmet. Like, I was pretty <laughs> impressed with myself. Yeah. But I, 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 that's when I learned how to switch on guys. And, mm-hmm. and I cut them under both eyes. And, and, uh, but I was, just, I was just pissed off. So that was probably the best fight I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And it was because I was furious. You know, I couldn't believe that he uh, – went out of his way to hit me and um so yeah that, that was pretty much it but yeah we we I, I i had to fight quite a bit against those guys uh they were a tough team and you know we had to step stand up for ourselves every one of those games seemed to be a kind of a gong show you know we played those guys so um another guy that you, you actually I, I believe you fought him three times your first year was uh lyle odeline who i think was with sherbrooke at the time uh was yeah. that was that circumstance was there a rivalry there uh how'd you end up fighting him three times it started out as just uh, just a normal, you know, he wanted to fight me thing, but then got to the point where I didn't like him. I'm mm-hmm. sure he didn't like me either. Yeah. But those fights, I never really did well against him at all. Again, like I didn't really know what I was doing back then, mm-hmm. so I was more of a grappler. But yeah, um, yeah he just, uh, he, I just didn't like him, yeah. you know, and he didn't like me. So because we fought again in, in um, when he was with Montreal, I was with yep. Ottawa, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, he won't he won't say this, but he definitely jumped me. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I had no chance in that fight, but um, you know, so that that one really pissed me off. But hey, what are you gonna do? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, I had to ask because I saw him on there a couple of times. So, and I, the question I'm about to ask you to me means so much more to me now after you basically described the the hell that you went through in college. But uh, how did you learn? How did you learn of your call up to the Bruins? Like I always like asking guys this when they get their their first call up. Uh, I always like hearing the stories behind it. Uh, how did you learn you were getting called up to the Bruins? Oh man, this is funny. Um, so uh, we were at practice in Maine, and we we'd actually just had a uh, a bag skate. Like every day, the rookies had to skate extra, right? So we just skated for like twenty thirty minutes, and then I had to do a bike ride. So I'm riding the bike, right? And uh, all of a sudden, Rick Bonus, I'm about halfway through my workout on the bike, and uh, Rick Bonus is standing in front of me. He's got this goofy smile on his face, <laughs> and uh, he's just smiling at me. I go, uh, can I help you, coach? He goes, uh, you're playing in Boston tonight. And so I, I was kind of shocked, right? And I'm riding the bike, and John Blum is riding beside me. I've got, I've got 10 minutes more on my workout, so I'm going to finish the workout, right? Mm-hmm. 
And Blummer goes, hey, kid, what are you waiting for? I've got to finish my workout. He goes, no, you don't, you dummy. You're planting it. Get off that bike and get going. So I'm like, okay. So here, here I was. I'm, 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 I think I have to finish my workout first. But no, you, so I, I, that's how, yeah, that's how I learned. And I ended up, um, it was the Montreal Canadiens. I went to, I went to Boston and um, checked into the hotel, into the Sinesta. And uh, the next day, I go to practice. You know, everything's great. And I take in my pregame nap, and the phone rings, and, and, and it's my, my college coach. Oh. And keep in mind, of what was it, two years before this, he told me I, I wasn't, was never going to make it to the NHL. Yeah. And he's on the phone. And he's like, oh, I'm so proud of you. I knew, you're, I knew you could do this. And I said, you know what, Coach, actually, that's not true. Yeah. He told me I'd never make it. But listen, I've got a game tonight. I really got to get ready. I'm taking my nap, so I got to go on the phone. But I, you know, and I just so that so then I played, and of course, I, I the first fight I had on the show is Steve Ferguson. Same thing. Yeah. I'm not ready to go. I um, he he looks at me, and I I dropped the gloves, and I lost that fight. So, mm. you know, it just, it just wasn't a good it wasn't a a, a good debut at all. But mm. but as far as my play was concerned, I I think I I, I did really well. I they were kind of shocked that they got. Everyone was shocked that I could skate and I could handle the puck and shoot and stuff. They're, they're, the next day, the, the article the next day was, they were marveling at the fact that I could actually, you know, play hockey. And that 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 was a turning point for me because when when that that happened, I was offended by that. Mm-hmm. I was offended that they thought all I could do was fight, right? So that that's why I wanted to really establish myself as more of a player. And honest to God, that's when I slowed down the fighting because I mm-hmm. I thought to myself, well, this is all they want me to do. And it's just this is bullshit. So I want to play. Yeah, like I don't mind fighting when I need to, but I don't want you to tell me that that's my only job. That that you know I'm so dumb and I can't skate that you know, all I can do is fight. I, that's how I felt. Yeah, whether they whether they meant it or not, whether it was intended or not, I don't know. But that's how they made me feel. I'm thinking this is bullshit. I can actually play hockey. I bet I could score 20 goals in this league. Mm-hmm. You know, if given the opportunity. And um, that's why I really that day I started to really kind of curtail the fighting and and try to focus more on being a player, I guess. And and that that kind of hurt me too because I I wasn't fighting as much after that. Right. Um, do you? I, I always always like asking the guys this. And aside from the phone call that you got, like, do you remember? Like, do you remember that just that whole day? Like, you know, like you go to hotel, maybe you get up, you have your morning skate, you go back to hotel, and forget about the phone call. But like going to the rink around probably like four thirty, five o'clock, and just walking into the locker room. Like, you know, you're walking into an NHL locker room, and not just an NHL locker room. Like, you're Boston Garden. Like, do you just remember like the whole thing, like putting on that jersey and going out for the the pregame skate and everything? I mean, is that something that you can remember? Because I gotta imagine that's got to be an amazing memory. Yeah, it's it, you know the whole thing seemed like a dream. Yeah, like literally every everything you just mentioned. Walking onto the ice for practice, putting on putting on my jersey um, for warm up, it, it literally felt like a dream. So, so what, what happened was reality kicked in for me. So I'm sitting on the bench, right? The national anthem's going and all this stuff, and I'm looking at all the banners, and I'm just thinking, yeah. to myself, and I used to see these banners on TV, mm-hmm. right? And I'm in that same building where I saw Bobby Orr playing, Phil Esposito, and all these guys, and and all of a sudden I'm looking down, I looked down at my jersey. I see the spoke be, and I'm like, holy shit, man. And then all of a sudden, I said to myself, wow, my dream actually came true. Because I, I, I dreamed of this moment, Yeah. but the logo was a maple leaf, right? Okay, yeah. But I'm looking down, and I see the bee, and I said, hey, I made it. And then all of a sudden, my eyes glance over to my left, and I see the freaking Montreal effing Canadians. <laughs> and I go, uh-oh. 
you better wake up, dude, because that's the Montreal freaking Canadians, man. Mm-hmm. Like, this is real. Like, wake up. So I, I bit my tongue like, like on purpose, and I felt and I felt the pain. I realized that I was no longer in a dream. I said, I better wake up, man. Like, I'm going to get killed if I'm in La La Land. Yeah. So all of a sudden, reality kicked in, and then, then it became a job. It was no longer what it was. It was no, no longer a dream. I said, okay, I got a job to do now, and I got I, I, I I, I to do well. So, yeah, but it was all a dream up until that moment when I looked at the Canadians and I, and I said, shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that, you can't pick a better team to debut against. The <sighs> Bruins rivalry, are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, you, you can't, can't uh, again, you can't pick a better script, a way to start your career. And yep. uh, I, I played well. I hit the goal post on Patrick Waugh, almost beat him on my first shot. Yeah. Also, I mean, all that stuff, uh, I remember like it was yesterday. And then, of course, the, the Steve Martinson uh, beating I took. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like he, I said, he did say, he did say good fight, kid. He did yeah. say that to me. He patted me on the head. Good fight, kid. Good job. I was like, all right, thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, he's a good veteran guy and everything, and he's been through the wars. So, yeah. you know, I asked you about you, and I'm going to ask you about some tougher players. But I got to ask you, and this was your first experience, I maybe aside from training camp, but when we talked about when you played with Joey Juno at RPI, and now you're you're a Bruin and you're playing with Cam Neely and Ray Bork. I mean, those guys are obviously different level hockey players. And I, I mean, what to, and, and I guess Bork is more of an artist where Neely is a free train, but he's got soft hands and everything. And Neely's a forward and he's, and he's a physical forward like yourself. But what, what was it like being around those guys? Well, that, that in itself was, is another story. I remember, um, I remember getting on the ice um, for our first scrimmage and um, I see Ray Bork. I'm sitting on the bench. I'm, on, I'm on, right, right along the blue line and Ray Bork gets the puck about 10 feet inside the blue line. And I, like he, he was skating up towards it as he got the puck. So he had some momentum, but that doesn't matter. He, he took literally three strides and was, was across the blue line. Jeez. So that, that traveled about I don't know, 40 feet, 50 feet in three freaking strides, dude. And I could hear it. And then, then he took a bomb on net. And I remember at that moment I said, oh, I can't play with these guys. I don't belong. <laughs> like, I, I, I couldn't skate like that. Yeah. You know, three strides and you're over center ice already? 50 feet. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't even imagine. What was that? Like 35, 40 feet per second or some crazy thing? I don't know what it was. But he was, he was flying, man. I mean, so um, I, I remember thinking that. Like, I couldn't play. And then later on that year, when I got called up, um, I was doing a one-on-one drill, and and the next guy up was um, um, Ray Bork, and I'm like, oh my god, I got to go against Ray Bork, uh, and um, so I, I went I went down against him, and now the D-men had to turn their sticks over, okay, so um, so I had, the forwards had a bit of an advantage, but I beat Ray Bork one-on-one, and after I beat him, I was so shocked, I get to I, I'm so I'm sort of on a partial breakaway, and who am I shooting against? Andy Moog. Uh, yeah. So I'm like, oh, my God. I just put the puck in his pads. I was like, shit, I just beat Ray Bork one-on-one, man. Yeah, yeah, I know his stick was turned upside down, but I don't care. It still counts. Hell, yeah. <laughs> so, absolutely. And, and then I got to shoot the puck against Andy Moog, Mr. Four-time or five-time Stanley Cup champion or whatever it was. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, um. So yeah, uh, so yeah, that, that was my, my, my first, my first, my first uh, taste of pro hockey, uh, the NHL, and you know, you've got Ray Bork and Cam Neely. Um, it's just, I've got a good Cam Neely story, though. Um, um, he, uh, when I get called up the first time, we're at, we're at, uh, me and, uh, me and a couple other rookies, Wes Waltz and a kid named, uh, Shane, Shane Stevenson. Yep. We were, we were, um, we are drinking water, the water bottles practice was over. 
And we're standing by the boards, kind of like looking around and just kind of taking it all in. And um, all of a sudden, I looked around the ice, and I noticed every single guy on the team was working on some type of skill on their own, right, except for us three. Mm-hmm. And I go, guys, do you see what's going on here? And they're like, no, what? I said, every guy on this team's working on something except for us dummies. <laughs> and then I looked over at Cam Neely, and I saw him working on something. I said, And I said out loud to the guys, I go, I wonder what Cam's doing. And then, you know, Shane, Shane Stevens goes, he's, he's, he's shooting pucks, you dummy. What do you think he's doing? I go, no, no. He's not just shooting pucks. He's doing something specific. I could tell he wasn't just shooting for the sake of shooting, right? So I go, I'm going to go ask him. And they go, you can't do that. I go, why not? <laughs> well, he's a superstar. You can't talk to him. I go, shut up, dude. I, I may only be here one day, two days, 10 days. I don't know what, but I'm going to learn something from this guy. So I yeah. went over to him. And I go, hey, Cam, what are you doing? I've never talked to Cam before. Yeah. Say, hey, Cam, what are you doing? He goes, I'm working on my goal scoring. I go, huh? Like I was taught that you can't work on goal scoring back then. I was taught you either have the knack or you don't. Yeah. And here's a goal scorer telling me that he's actually working on it. So I asked him what he, specifically what he's trying to do, explain his whole thought process when he was on the ice and preparing to shoot or score. And I go, you think about all that stuff when you're on the ice? He goes, yeah, you got to process it. I was like, this first time I'd ever talked to a superstar, eh? Yeah. And I'm thinking, because I didn't know superstars compartmentalized things like that and thought things too. I thought they just, I just played hockey like a moron and ran around, hit people. And that was about it. <laughs> and every once in a while I shot the puck and it went in. This guy, he did everything on purpose. Yeah. Like, okay. So he showed me what he's doing. He took 50 pucks. He said, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to shoot these pucks from the face off dot, the right face off dot. It's going to be six inches off the ice, off the far post and in. I go, okay. So he shoots 50, 45, go off the post and in six inches. I was like, what the hell? Jeez. <sighs> Thinking I'm a pro, I can do this. So, <laughs> 50. Pretty much every puck missed the net. I got to the point where I said, screw this, I just started putting the pucks in the middle of the net. Because that's what I was, all I was taught to do is just hit the net, right? Yeah. I wasn't taught to hit specific spots. And so after that, I said, okay, I got to work on this. So I, I started working on that every single day. Yeah. Until I got to, uh, after it took me five years, no word of a lie, five years to get to, get to where I could hit that spot. 80% of the time. Cam was 90%. Yeah. And I got that time, that, that point where I could do that. And then something happened. The reason Cam went six inches off, six, six inches off the ice is because goalies were stand-up goalies back then. Mm-hmm. And that's the room you had, right? Well, now, so, as soon as I learned how to do it, everyone's a butterfly goalie. So when they go down, the pads, <laughs> the pads are 12 inches thick. Yeah. And they're hitting the freaking pads now. I'm like, shit. <laughs> So I had to learn how to score against butterfly goalies, and that was a whole different, whole different thing, right? So yeah. I finally learned that. But then by the time I learned that, my career was over. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it, it, that's the process, though. So I mean, you got to start young, right? Cam, Cam was working on that crap since he was a teenager. Yeah. And um, you know, so I, I didn't know as a teenager that you had to be specific and, yeah. and, and aim for certain spots. I didn't have enough hockey IQ or knowledge to know that. Right. He did. Mm-hmm. That's what made him such a great player. He he he's so far ahead of his, uh, the rest of us. Yeah, he's scary. I mean, just a, all around scary guy. He could beat the shit out of you. He could you know score. Yeah. He could put the puck wherever he wants. I mean, that guy, uh, un, unreal talent. You know, and, and just scary to think what what he would have done if he didn't have the knee injuries and uh, the other yeah. injuries. You know, you play that way, and then you get an asshole like Ulf Samuelson taking your knees out, and uh, just frightening to think what numbers that guy would have put up. But it, it, you know, the guy is so good. I mean, he's he's a he's a hockey icon, and I'm sure he's just an absolute legend in Boston. And you know, but uh, he's a good 
you know, the kind of player that you just have to love. Like, he's just an unbelievable player, and I'm sure he's a pretty good guy, too. You know, he's a great guy. I, me- I remember we're, we're playing Chicago at home, and it's, this game's for first place overall. It's, so it's a big game. And I went out there, and I had an opportunity. I could have probably put Gary Suter out for the season, mm-hmm. and I didn't. I, you know, I, 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 it was kind of a blindside hit opportunity. I, I could have really hurt him. I didn't do it. I, I knocked him down, but I, yeah. I literally could have put him out for the year if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And uh, so after the, after the period, Mike Milbury flipped out on me in the locker room. He goes, next time you let up on a hit like that, you'll never play another game for us. Yeah. So you ripped me a new one. Mm-hmm. And so he left the room, right? And Cam nearly walked across the room to me and sat down beside me. He goes, hey, kid, listen, I know why you did that. That's a classy hit. That's a class move. Don't listen to him. You're yeah. playing good. He walked back to because even Cam Neely, you know, wouldn't have done that. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so I mean, like I, mean, I could have killed the guy, but I, I mean, it's out of respect. Like I'm not going to go, you know, try to end some guy's career. You know what I mean? Right. But, but I also understood Mike's point of view. Like, you got to play hard all the way through. But I just, I just could not like, per, like purposely do that to a guy. You know, yeah. unless he did it to me first. You know, what I mean, then I absolutely no problem. I'd do it for sure. Mm-hmm. But um, but that's why. So yeah, so Cam, Cam, you know, as a leader, didn't talk a lot, but then saw this rookie having a rough time and came over to support me and said, basically, you know, I did the right thing. That I, you know, I, yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to hurt somebody on purpose. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. So even even though he played as hard as he did, he wasn't trying to end guys' careers when he played either. You right. know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But even even a hit from Cam Neely is a devastating hit. Oh, you know, yeah, the guy's a free train. Uh, I mean, just yeah. a stud. Uh, I mean, just the guy does everything right. So uh, just an yeah. absolute animal. Um, you had a you had a run in with Chris King this season, also. Uh, King, King was with the Rangers. Uh, you had a run in with him. Is that something that you talk about or no? No, you know, I, I don't want to drag him into this whole thing because, like, you know, that that was a really unfortunate situation, and I, I know I know it's been denied and all that kind of stuff, but yeah. You know, it, it was I was it was such a blur for me yeah. mm-hmm. playing against that team and, and that whole situation. But um, I, I think that everything about it was handled so wrong. Like I I didn't think the media need to be brought into it. Mm-hmm. That that was disappointing. And I know I know um you know even like I said he doesn't he he denies it. But I I don't I know he didn't mean any. I know these every time it's happening. Mean, I know the guys didn't mean it the way mm-hmm. most people take it. You know what I mean? It's, I it's, understand. I've I've said there's a lot of things that I've said in hockey mm-hmm. that if it got to the media i'd be in a lot of trouble you yeah. know mm-hmm. so I've, I've said some horrible things to people but you know what happens on the ice you stay on the ice as far as i'm concerned so i don't really talk about that the gord krupke thing i don't i don't talk about because gordon and i are really good friends mm-hmm. and and that was something where i i took that to the to a level where it shouldn't have gone to mm-hmm. and um i'm the one that uh brought it again when i did when i said what i said mm-hmm. i didn't know the media was sitting in the press box writing their stories mm-hmm. If I'd known they were there, I wouldn't have done that. But I was again, like Gordon and I are. I remember one time. Um, uh, so so I was I was I was in the office, uh, our coach's office in Houston, mm-hmm. and they were talking about Gord Krupke, and then they stopped talking when they saw me. Yeah. And I, I said, "You guys thinking of bringing Gord Krupke here?" And they said, "Well, yeah, but we're wondering how you'd feel about it." I said, "Are you freaking crazy? Gord's a great player, and he'd help our team win. Why wouldn't you bring him here?" Yeah. They, well, are you serious? I said, "Yeah, dude." What happened with us is water under the bridge, man. It's over. Yeah. So he brought Gordo there. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I did is I said, Gord, listen, man, like you and I are not going to talk about what happened. Right. Okay. It's over. Mm-hmm. So he goes, Hey, I'm, I'm in. So we're sitting there. One, so one, one preseason game, Gordy and I are sitting in the stand. We weren't playing this, this game. The coach was looking at some other players. And um, so 
I'm sitting in one seat. Gord sits in the row below me in a, in a seat watching warm up. And then Len Barry came over because mm-hmm. they they were together in junior. So they're they're talking about the old days and having a great time. And all of a sudden, Len Barry looks at me and realizes. <laughs> you know, he goes, "Hey, wait a minute!" And me and Gord look at each other yeah. and look at him. Water under the bridge. Mm-hmm. Don't talk, dude. Yeah. And he goes, "Oh, okay, no problem." Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of where I want to leave it, man. I, I mean, yep. that's water under the bridge, and mm-hmm. and no need to no need to actually go down that road because. Especially with what's going on in hockey right now, yep. I, I don't feel I don't feel that there's a systemic problem in hockey, mm-hmm. and and you know there's a group right now that's that's saying that there's a systemic problem. And I don't know what their personal experience is in hockey. Yep. I don't feel that there's a systemic problem in hockey. Mm-hmm. I feel this is there's a systemic problem in society. Yeah. I don't think a guy, a kid calls you the n-word on the ice because he's necessarily a racist or Mm -hmm. because he's a hockey player Mm -hmm. i think it's because somewhere in his world he's been taught that it's okay to say that Mm -hmm. and more particularly um it's his peer group but so imagine if you're on a team like i remember i had a teammate i don't i won't say who the guy was Mm -hmm. but um um you remember tim kerr yeah oh god yeah remember his wife passed away giving birth to his daughter Mm -hmm. right Remember that okay so we're getting off the ice, and um, and and we're, he's coaching in Springfield at the time. So we're getting off the ice. I won't tell you what I was playing for either, but yeah, getting off fine. the ice. Um, and um, he's Tim's yelling at the referees. He's standing on the players' bench, yelling at the refs, right? And my teammate looks at him and tells him to sit the f down. Oh. So he says, "F you." Mm-hmm. And so my teammate goes, "Hey, how's your wife doing?" No fucking now, way. I could choose. I was right beside him. Now I. No, I could have chosen not to say a word about it, but mm-hmm. that's not the kind of guy I am. So I get to the bench and I go, dude, that was bullshit, man. You can't say shit like that. Yeah. He's like, F him. I said, no, F you. Yeah. That's unacceptable. Don't ever F and do that again. And that was Jesus. it. So that, that's how, that's the, the appropriate response. Now it was, it was yeah. not, I, I wasn't the, the, the demonstrative. It was, it was me, me and him having a conversation. I don't think my teammates even heard him say anything. Right. Because they didn't, I don't think my teammates even heard him say it. Yeah. Yeah. When a guy when a guy says something like that, the other players on the team like there's players that don't agree with that type of that type of language or behavior. There's got to be guys. Not everyone not everyone's an asshole. Yeah. So if you're the type of guy that doesn't agree with it, you have an obligation to be a leader and, and correct that guy's behavior. And yeah. but guys don't do anything, mm-hmm. and that's why it's become more of an ongoing thing where people feel emboldened. But imagine if you said something like that and a few guys on your team that you respected dressed you down. Yeah. I don't think you'd keep doing it. Never. So that's where the problem is. It's in society. It's not. It's not a hockey problem. I don't like the game being given a black eye right. because of a couple of jerks that you know decide they want to cross the line, right? So, mm-hmm. so my, my mission is to is to send a different message that it's not a hockey problem. It's a societal problem, and we all have an obligation within our small corners of the world yeah. to correct that kind of behavior. Because now, when that kid does get into hockey, or soccer, or tennis, or you know, the the boardroom. He's not going to feel like it's okay to say stuff like that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. That's the way, you know, throwing yeah. money at it's not, not the issue. It's it's you got to change it from 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 an individual basis, person to person, starting in your own damn community. You know, and working it from there. That's powerful, so, so that, man. Powerful. Yeah, that's, that that's how I feel. Though. I mean, yeah. like I I me and I, I know lots of other guys who. You know, I, re- I remember one time a, a player, um, I won't say who it was either, yeah. called him Monkey on the ice, mm-hmm. okay? And uh, he was playing with a very honorable human being. And that guy skidded to me and goes, hey, that's bullshit, man. 
I'll tell this rookie, I'll straighten this rookie out. Mm-hmm. And he went and straightened him out. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. That's mm-hmm. kind of character. And this rookie went on to be a great player, by the yeah. way. Mm-hmm. And a very, very well-respected guy. Yeah. And I'm telling you because of his teammate, a veteran, who straightened that behavior out. And this guy went on to become a, an icon in, in, in the league, and, and I'm proud of him. But, but yeah. his teammate, a veteran, a, an old veteran, straightened him out because it's, it's, un, it's unacceptable behavior. That's yeah. what has to happen. That's not a hockey thing. That that veteran player happened to be a great human being mm-hmm. because of the way he was raised, I assume, and he straightened out that behavior. Yeah, That's where it has to come from, from from, from the individuals straightening out their own communities and, and straightening, straightening out this bad behavior. And, and that's, that's, that's what I'm going to spend a, 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 the rest of my life trying to do now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on that path right now. That's why I'm writing my book. And mm-hmm. I want that to be the message that, uh, you know, starting with kids, that this is the type of leadership that we're looking for in this world. And if you can be that type of leader, man, and you can go any, anywhere you want. In life. And you can, you can also impact in a positive way a lot of people are going down the wrong, the wrong path. I couldn't agree with you more. And that concludes part one of my chat with Graham Townsend. Come back next Monday for part two. I'm sure that you enjoyed part one. I don't know how you couldn't have. And again, it has nothing to do with the host. Uh, Please, like I said, check back next Monday for part two. And this Thursday in the good old US of A is Thanksgiving. So for everybody listening who is going to celebrate Thanksgiving on Thursday, like myself, Enjoy the time with your family. Enjoy the time around the table. Enjoy the good food. If you're going to watch football, enjoy the football. Just enjoy the time together. And everybody, please be safe.